On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we are going on a killing spree with Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis in Landscapers on Sky. And both Olivia and David dropped by the show to tell us a little bit about their murderous pursuits in that. Plus, we're on the other side of a murder hunt in Ragdoll on Alibi. And finally, we are heading out into the belt one last time to watch the Inners fight back against the Belter Loader in the sixth and final season of the greatest television show on Earth. The Expanse on Prime Video. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that after a brief period spent reunited under one roof back in the Pilot TV studio is once again banished to virtual recordings because one of our number has fallen foul of Omicron. But fear not, fear not, because riddled with the mutant strain as he unarguably is, consummate professional Boyd Hilton joins us today live from his quarantine sickbed to do the show because... As Chris Whitty will attest, the best treatment for COVID is a full season of The Expanse. Isn't that right, Boydie? <laughs> yes. Um, I should say that I haven't got the Omicron variant, as far as I'm aware. That is. A How would still... you know? Did, did, they, did um, they tell you which strain you have? I think they... I think they... I think they do. What well, I think they've said that where all the variants are, they're certainly not in Southwark where I live, in the London right. branch of Southwark where I live. I think disappoint it's just me, Boyd. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's just normal run of the mill COVID. Um, oh. But yeah. I've got I've got mild cold symptoms. Thank you very much. You're feeling and fine. You're okay. I'm feeling fine. Thank you. And it's coincided with um, there's about five thousand hours of football uh, this week on Amazon Prime. <laughs> and um, oh, and also I'm reviewing a, a show for Empire called um, The Witcher. So I have to watch. <laughs> I have Hang to on. watch loads Hang of episodes on. of that. You yeah. are writing The Witcher review for Empire. Did, did they not? Have they not spe- told you about this? Well, yeah, I didn't I mean, know you were doing it. So it, the discussion came up and it was perhaps mooted that I might be a little bit too, and I quote, in yeah. the tank for this one and yeah. therefore couldn't be trusted to review it. Yeah, basically, because you can't be trusted by your by your superiors on Empire Magazine who've, who've been working with you for, what, 20 years or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, oh, they've had to turn to me of some kind of more objective uh, view on this iconic load of stuff yeah so i'm entering into it with a fully open mind but i have to watch seven fucking hours of it between now and um sunday yeah i mean i think you're fine but it's six hours is it six you, sorry as a pleb only get the first six episodes whereas i as a special friend of the witcher was invited into netflix's offices to watch the full season of all eight episodes which i have already watched i'm amazed i'm amazed they didn't let you special friend of the witcher i know review the witcher but yeah 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 qed Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, were, you yes were, were you literally sat in his lap? Like, you know, he's like... I mean, it was a bit like that. It was yeah. a bit like that. I can't, yeah. I can't lie. Uh, yeah. But it was... It was. I mean, so I can't it, obviously break any embargoes and give you any kind of reaction to it, but uh, I had a very good yeah. day. I'm just going to yeah. say that. Great, guys. Um, I'm just envisioning you sat in Superman's lap while he, while he cracks up the Witcher <laughs> series season two. <laughs> Stroking your bald head, yeah. Well, I mean, stroking his dog, actually. That's not a euphemism. Oh. Stroking his actual dog, <laughs> Cal. Uh, that was very exciting. Yes, it was a good Ooh. time was had by all, but many more. <laughs> good. Uh, but Beth's here as well, I should mention this. You know, completely, completely forgetting all this. Hi, Beth. Hello. Our West Country correspondent, the one, the only, Beth Webb. You do not have COVID. Um, don't feel left out. No. I mean, I don't either, so... No. No, I'm very glad not to be a part of that club, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hello. 
I will say that this this COVID thing has thrown an, another spanner into the works, which is that Boyd has had to retire from the official pilot TV mm. TV quiz team. Okay. There is a big TV quiz thing happening uh, as we go out. It will be tomorrow. Uh, it's put on by a number of the broadcasters, and Boyd was our ringer. Boyd was our, our ace in the <laughs> hole. He was our secret weapon. Shit. We were going to bust Steady. him out to get all the questions right and walk away with whatever goodies they have on offer. And, <laughs> and you know, I, I suspect, Boyd, I suspect yeah. that, like, Radio Times team, like, purposely infected you. I think that's what it is. Oh, they purposely you know gave you COVID so they could walk away with the, with the trophy. If this was, this, seriously, if this was a who done it like you know um drama i did i did i had to fill in because when you get covid you have to go online and you have to fill in a, a form basically detailing all the it's kind of events you've been to that may have been where you've con- contracted it. in fact they ask you on the in this form where do you think you contracted it? and i did attend obviously a number of tv launches i hosted one of them with oh, the Martin Freeman. yeah and um and so I kind of exp- I, I put all these details, all these things that I went to, and yeah. and I thought, do you know what, TV journalists, if t- if no other TV journalists, possibly from the ra- including the Radio Times, have got this thing, it'll be a miracle. Um, and uh, and I could well have got it from one of those people. So yeah, if it was a who done it, it would be a a Radio Times TV hack. Who this gave is it to the me. Salisbury poisoning all over again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if definitely. anyone was going to contract COVID from a TV celebrity, it would be boys, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. You probably oh, got it from Martin Freeman. You yeah, make a very valid one. point here. Like, is there? It's a very real possibility Boyd has wiped out most of English TV stardom <laughs> over the past <laughs> couple of weeks because let's not get you carried know, away. Rubbing your shoulders away. as you do with all the famouses, you've yeah. absolutely well, given them all COVID. Oh my God, we have I to did. call Russell Tovey. Is Russell yeah. Tovey okay? Well, if Russell Tovey seen... can't be Doctor Who now because Boyd's because given him COVID. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I hadn't seen Russell Tovey in this period, but I had, not only had I um, been to the football with Dermot O'Leary, not only had oh. I, been, I, I went to, we went to brunch with him. We had a nice brunch, all of us, to go to Arsenal. And the mul- because Arsenal scored twice in the game, there were multiple hugs were given oh as God. well. So I, I, he was the first person, all my Arsenal Right. I had to inform all of them, and luckily they all tested negative, so they, they, they've survived me. Um, even somewhere, Boyd, somewhere yeah. in Chris Whitty's office, there's like a chart on a wall, and it just says Boyd Hilton in the middle, <laughs> and there's like lines coming out of it, pointing to like all the famous people in Britain, and just like with big like question marks next to their names. There's going to be yeah. a massive like section next year where there'll be no television because everyone will have been ill and unable to make stuff. It's going to be a yeah. disaster. Yeah, sorry, I apologise in advance, yeah. I'm shocked yep. and appalled. Um, but other than, you know, infecting all the famous people in Britain, Boydie, what have you been watching in your, well, you know, convalescence? Yeah. Apart from football. Um, I want to say that um, I, Doctor Who, just to mention Doctor Who, as this goes out, so the, the last episode of the Flux series will have gone out uh, yesterday, Sunday. I've seen it. Um, and I just love the whole series. I love the whole series. I think it's shown us a... That um, Chris Chibnall's all Chris, it played to all Chris Chibnall's strong points. So Chris Chibnall, you know Chibnall, but Chibnall, Chibnall, who <laughs> is a master of kind of you know of who done it, obviously, but of kind of extended six eight episode um, stories with big arcs and bold storytelling and relentless pace. He he kind of does all that really well, and it and and I think kind of almost after three years of of being in charge of Doctor Who, he's found his real sweet spot with the series. And it's been an absolute joy from start to finish. Complicated, quite quite difficult to keep track of at some points, but it's been so brilliantly entertaining, fun, beautifully made, by the way. They've mm. really stepped up 
the the VFX, the production design, absolutely stunning and spectacular. The best it's ever been. I mean, it should be, I guess. It should, you know, Doctor Who's one of those shows that should get more and more sophisticated visually and technically as it goes on, but it really has. They really have pulled out all the stops. So I've absolutely loved it, all the different guest stars. And now um, can't wait for the New Year's Day special, which has got Daleks in it and um, and Ashling B. I mean, what oh more can you want? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, I love her so yeah. much. Exactly, yeah. So that's oh, very exciting. Um, and I watched another show. I thought, well, I am, I am ill with COVID. I literally <sighs> cannot leave my flat um, for eight, nine, ten days or whatever. Anyway, wherever it is. Um, so I thought, I, I haven't got any excuse to not watch something that I normally wouldn't watch. So I cranked up the Netflix and I watched this um, this animated thing, this animated <laughs> show <laughs> called... <laughs> called arcane <laughs> and um i hate to i hate to spoil no i hate to spoil the party i was going to pretend for a minute i didn't like it but it is it is absolutely brilliant isn't it it really isn't is it? fully it's incredible yeah, fully on board it's beautiful to look at the animation is astonishing and i think in, in, in the whole animation history controversy of this fucking podcast where our, us <laughs> animation <laughs> morons, we animation morons, me, James, and our former boss, um, we, we can't, I, I think we always said we like, you know, spectacularly brilliant animated movies we were kind of on board with. You know, I mean, not being complete wankers who would, you know, dismiss you know, <laughs> some of the great, some absolutely classic films that have just because they happen to be animated. Yeah. Um, but this is the first TV. I don't know because I'm obviously not an expert, as you, as everyone knows. But this feels to me like the most beautifully animated TV thing ever. So I mean, I've definitely dipped in and out of loads of them for some of them for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. But there's something about the the animation of this and the way it's directed and the way the camera moves and just the whole atmosphere of the animation of the visuals that seems to me a big step forward and and reminiscent of the best animated films that we've had in, in recent times. Some of the, you know, the Spider-Man is the Spider-Verse, which, mm. you know, and, and other stuff like that. And um, it just looks, it looks amazing, but it is involving. The characters are really fun. The dialogue's good. It's, it's witty. Um, it's not try hard. Um, it's just, a, and it's got a kind of rollicking adventure quality. And you know what? And the, the bit that, the, the funny bit, the way it really got me is there's a scene in episode one. I mean, I'm halfway through it, but there's a scene in episode one where they, where you kind of meet these like police state type people who are trying to capture the, the, kids and then this this voice comes comes through of one of these one of these this woman character and she's this hoarse kind of incredibly <laughs> atmospheric like voice so i was thinking where do i recognize that voice and it's shora agadishlu from the fucking expanse she has, this, she has she's the best voice she has the, the most voice. incredible voice doesn't she I in know, all the voices amazing. And like she uses it, we'll get to her in the expanse later. But yeah. even in this, you're like, oh my god, that she has this fantastic gravelly, growly voice that sounds like she's got fucking COVID, but it's just her normal voice. And um, she's and so and that scene I thought was great. And though the, they manages to kind of um, establish characters like hers within about ten seconds of you meeting them, so you're instantly fascinated by them. It is quite there's there's elements of it that are quite cliche that are a bit like the there's one villain who's got a wonky eye thing going on and a hairless yeah. cat literally literally <laughs> yeah. like dr evil literally dr evil um and there are kind of cheesy moments to it but over, all in all i mean it's just it's really really good yeah it's very good yeah so, sure actually i remember her first and foremost from i think it was season 
24, I want to say, for 24, yeah. I think, uh, where she was uh, Beirut's mother in that. She spent a lot of time screaming, Beirut, in that brilliant <laughs> voice of hers. I loved it. Uh, yeah, she's great. But also, yeah. you know, The Expanse. The Expanse, um, yeah. We'll yes, glad, I'm glad we'll to have you on board, Boydie. Yeah, team, ex- fully team, on board. team Arcane. Yeah, Arcane has changed, has rocked our, our ludicrously anti-animation world. <laughs> I know, I know. It is, it's, un, it's like uh, unlearn everything you have learned. Right, Bethany, what have you been watching? Um, well, mainlined The Witcher season one ahead of my <sighs> dazzling yeah. red carpet, pi- pilot red carpet debut, I'd say. This is the first time I think I've been invited to anything pilot-based. And so I was like, oh shit, I better watch it, hadn't I? <laughs> 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 so mainlined Witcher and I just did half. I'd say I'd understood about half to 75% of it from the off, knowing absolutely nothing about it. I won't lie, it did take me a few episodes to realise it was different timelines. <laughs> but that's the same as everyone. Yeah, that's the okay. same as everyone. Yeah. Oh, that makes me feel better. Mm. Um, mm. But that was great. And then I did I did take to the uh, the twiggy red carpet uh, at Leicester Square this week. Um, and I know we're not allowed to talk about spoilers, but I was listening to, to Henry Cavill talking about his character. And I was like, it's James. I feel like I'm watching Superman, but with James Dyer dubbed over the top, such as the matched enthusiasm for this character. It was really uncanny. So that was my main takeaway for the premieres, is Henry Cavill is essentially a wider, broader, you know, hairier. Far more attractive version James of me. You could say it's fine. I'm not saying um, the goddamn thing. <laughs> I just absolutely loved that that shared like gut enthusiasm for that character. Like he just lit up when he was talking mm. about it, and it really has. I mean, I'm not very invested in in DC stuff, and I've not really followed his movie career, but it really has made me reassess Henry Cavill, and I think he's great. <laughs> I really do. I know this is a shock to absolutely no one but me, but I was like, oh, God. So yeah, Big Witcher week, and then I I think we need to talk about Hawkeye episode three. I know we're doing a spoiler special or you're doing a spoiler special, but... I actually wasn't on it because I was doing Witcher interviews when oh, it was being recorded, fair. but carry wow. on. Unbelievable. Absolutely mm. yeah. stunning. It's I a very good episode. was so sold. I, I really enjoyed the first two episodes, but I was so sold on this, more so than I think on Loki for the... Mm. I, I just... Bold. Couldn't... Ooh quite believe what I was watching it so like the the car sequences were like beautifully choreographed I love that two-hander now they've, they've it's where they've taken away the senses and they're saying the same things but without realizing that kind of light comic touch but also incredibly heartfelt I even got the kingpin reference which is a big deal for me um so yeah loved it absolutely loved it fully on board can't wait to see the next one yeah so that's been my two my two big ones this week yeah, it was a good one. I enjoyed I enjoyed that episode of Hawkeye a lot as well. I like I think as we discussed, I thought the first two were really good, but this one really sold me on the action in particular. Yeah. Uh, so there was some very good arrow play in this uh, oh in this God. episode. Great. Uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, I also too was at the Witcher premiere <laughs> as a friend of the Witcher himself. Um, I, to, I to be fair, I fair play to them. Like they did a really good job. So it was the Odeon Lesser Square. 
and they had done it up to look like Kaermoran. So you had snow and trees and a forest outside, and inside it was all like flagstones and iron and sort of like thrones and things. So it was lovely. Like they didn't put a real effort, but that was on the Wednesday night. And then the Thursday night, they turned it into sort of like the west side of Manhattan for <laughs> the West Side Story screening. So it was like, I'm in the same place, but this place, it has a very different vibe tonight. Like what is going on? There was like washing hanging from a line. There was like a fire escape it's like there was a great big fuck off broadsword here yesterday i don't know what's going on there um so yeah that was quite uh that was quite entertaining but yes enjoyed enjoyed the what did you prefer too. james what did you prefer the uh <laughs> the first the, the premiere season premiere season two of the witcher at the odeon yeah. leicester square or steven spielberg's long-awaited remake of one of the greatest <laughs> musicals of all time west side story <laughs> Let us say I was very much tossing coins Witcher-wise in this particular comparison. I uh, I did not, I think it's safe to say, have the best time at West Side Story. Uh, Amazing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm not not a massive fan of that as a musical. Uh, It's not one of my, I think it's terrible. It's not for me. Like, it is 100% not for me. I like musical theatre in its certain Les Mis type form I like certain ones but I just yeah West Side Story I wait can't a minute, get wait a minute, wait a minute. you prefer Les Mis to West Side Story oh god yes oh Fuck's 100% sake. Like, Les Mis no. I've seen that 12 times West Side Story no. I wanted to beat myself to death multiple times during that three what? hour screening uh, so Les Miserable <laughs> yeah, the yeah, saddest yeah. most yeah. literally oh, miserable it's moving, it's nah. moving. it gets nah. you in the feels nah. no Absolutely not. Hang on, hang on. On the one hand, you've got a story about like death and abandonment and mothers dying and their child having to be adopted and a stupid revolution. Mm. You've got all this stuff doing. And on the other hand, you've got a kind of slight Romeo and Julia knockoff, which really realistically squeezes 10 minutes of plot into a three hour film. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. No, I'll tell you what, friend of the Empire podcast, Helen and Steve Webb, actually met during a school production of West Side Story. So oh, well, so you're, you're very much in the so tank for this, I think. Yeah. Wouldn't be oh, here without wow. it. Would not be wow. here without West Side Story. That's amazing. So. That's brilliant. Beth owes nice. her existence to West Side Story. Yeah. So, wow. Yep. That's quite special. I'm glad they didn't call you Maria. Why don't they call you Maria? That's a very good point. I yeah. don't know. I don't know. Why do they call me Bethany? How many Bethanies do you know? Or Elizabeth? <laughs> well, fine. You should be called Maria. Be I think Maria. that's that's absolutely true. Uh, the only other thing I watched this week, other than stuff that we have discussed, is uh, Temple, which I've never seen because I missed it oh, yeah. when we reviewed the first season and we didn't do season two. And so I, I've been enjoying it a lot. So I started watching right, Temple from the yeah, beginning. Really good. Yeah. Oh, good. good. Excellent. Yeah, I've you've got a treat. Strong. You've got absolute yeah. treat. Yeah, I really like it. And the second series is even better than the first. Yes. Well, I will. I will look forward to watching that as well once I've finished season one. Right. Shall we talk about this week's question, which I have not shared with either of you? No. Um, but this <laughs> yeah. one comes from Tom Basson or Tom Basson. Apologies, Tom, pronouncing that pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, and he says, asked a very interesting question, which is why are film directors and TV writers seemingly important and highlighted by the media, but TV directors and film writers are largely ignored? And that is actually quite an interesting point because like if you go on to shows on the imdb like obviously the director of a film is was 
first and foremost, it's quite hard to find details on the creative leads behind TV shows. Mm. Something I found. Maybe I'm using yeah. MDB wrong, but you know, they're certainly not front loaded. Like even the showrunner is like you have to dig around a bit. Yeah. And funnily enough, when I interviewed Alex Garland a while back for I think it was Frex Machina, and he he kind of took me to task and said that Empire is guilty of pushing the cult of the director. And he says that we seem to ascribe, I don't think it just means empire, but <laughs> I think it means you know the media in general, but 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 we seem to ascribe everything that's done in a film to the director. If the acting is good, oh, the excellent direction. If the camera work is good, oh, that's the director. You know, if the sound mix is good, oh, excellent direction. So yeah. there are people doing these jobs, was his point. Uh, and I kind of, what he was saying was like, when he directed Ex Machina, he was like, you know, he didn't feel that he was necessarily more listened to than when he was working with Danny Boyle as a writer. But as I kind of said to him, I think maybe his experience working with Danny Boyle in a very collaborative role as a film writer was maybe, I don't know, would you say unindicative of, of most screenwriters' experiences? What do you think? I mean, because it's a whole different. You remember, like the spec script age, where, where mm. like you'd get someone would write a script, it would go off. Someone would maybe buy it. They'll get eight different other people to rewrite it mm. and change it. It might not resemble what they got. So it feels like they they'd finish a screenplay, it would go away, and then stuff would happen to it that was beyond their control. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, but the, the, but the question the, the question is is there's a absolutely pertinent because it is really interesting how um, TV particularly in the era of the showrunner. I mean, the showrunner is a, fella, is mm. a relative... I'm not saying it's a, it's a relatively recent job. I'm saying yeah. it's a relatively recent term that's become yeah. into popular use and reflects the um, extraordinary power of the writer in TV, in the world of TV, where most showrunners um, are writers. That's their, you know, sometimes they're the writer-director, but, but a yeah. lot of the time, and the few English examples of them, British examples of them, for mm. example, like Russell T. Davis has effectively been the showrunner of most of his shows since Queer as Folk. Um, but he's the writer slash producer, and he yeah. brings in directors. He's never directed um, any of them or anything. I think, you know, he's never directed, interestingly. Um, and similarly with, you know, the Doctor Who showrunner, it's always referred to as the showrunner. I was talking earlier about Chris Chibnall bringing the current showrunner of Doctor Who. Russell's coming back. And he's the chief writer, really, and exec producer, and they bring in a series of directors. He chooses the directors. And showrunners, so the writers of shows, the writers slash creators of shows in the world of TV often pick directors you know, and that's kind of generally the way it works. Whereas in film and the auteur theory, as you're talking about, as you mm. cr cr criticised for, it is like sh easy shorthand, isn't it, to say yeah. Steven Spielberg's West Side Story? Yeah, it's reductive. Fact, it is hell. reductive. Yeah, yeah, it's reductive, but it is a shorthand, and it, but it, it's absolutely right. It, it's it, it's it's so in, it, it, it's fascinating. It's a thing I'm fascinated but, by. Yes, me too. And I wonder whether it's because I mean, it's essentially it comes down to it's the need for when talking about a product to be or a project when talking about a film, whether it be a TV show, is to distill the experience of it down to one creative voice and yeah. to find the creative lead in it. And in a TV show, that primary creative voice is generally the showrunner, uh, if such a thing exists on the TV show, which doesn't always. Uh, and in a film, it is primarily the director. And I, but I do think it varies quite a lot. So if you look at something like Peaky Blinders, obviously it's Stephen Knight's show. He's the writer, he's the creator. He writes every episode of that show. Um, so in, he is basically the showrunner. Yeah. But... But Otto Bathurst, who only directed the first few episodes of, of season one of Peaky Blinders, he's responsible for the fact that you have that kind of anachronistic musical cues in there, which gives Peaky Blinders so much of its identity. That's drawn from the director. You look at Tommy Schlammy and Aaron Sorkin, who is work it, together that, as a partnership. Sure about, oh, so, wait, yeah. wait a minute. Are you saying that because you happen to know that, because of the interviews yeah, I am you've saying done? That because I happen to know that, right. yes. Well, what, but a lot of the time, that's not the case. <laughs> a lot of the time... No, no, this completely. Is a, 
Right, but but uh, sorry to interrupt. But an interesting point is that uh, that people who use the shorthand of the director or, or, or write this singular a uh, creative voice, as you say, mm. often don't realise that in the script, in the original script of a lot of shows, they they specify this music. You know, when Ricky Gervais writes the script of Afterlife, he thinks of what music, what the the, the songs he wants to put in there at that mm. point, and that happens a lot in scripts uh, where. The, the scriptwriter specifies songs, you know, um, to yeah. be used. And often stage directions are, so, you know, it may well be, I haven't read it, but it, I, I, it may well be that Stephen Knight's a script for the very first episode of Peaky Blinders, which I remember, you know, the, him arriving on the horse. You, you remember even now, yeah. because it's so visually striking. It's a Nick it may Cave, well be, yeah. Yeah, it may well be a lot of that visual stuff was in the script, was stage directions in the script. And people don't, I, 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 I get quite... I, I boringly one of my stock questions, but I ask it because I genuinely want to know of big in big set piece sequences in TV shows that I interview people for. I'm fascinated as to whether the visual spectacle was comes from the script originally. It comes from mm. the stage, and often they do. It's really surprising often how what you think is a directorial flourish. Um, completely from the director, it actually often comes from the scriptwriter. Well, in this case, I think Stephen actually now to this point actually does write right. some of the music into the screenplays. Right. But early on, it was very much Otto's idea to do that. Okay. And like there was some discussion about whether or not it would even work. Mm. Uh, in terms of the visual style, that I can't speak to because I've not seen the shooting script. But it, I think it's it's a collaboration a lot of time, isn't it? Like yeah, yeah, the yeah. writer will have a vision and the director will have their idea and they'll meet in the middle. And I kind of, as I was mentioning briefly before, like Aaron Sorkin and Tommy Schlammy, it was very much a partnership on like the West Wing, where Shlami was like, we need to give visual interest to your incredibly long blocks of text, which is where the walk and talk comes from. But that was entirely his thing. And it, and it went on to kind of, you know, define that show. Um, but it is a collaboration. But those two worked very much together all the way through. Um, so I don't know. I think it's one of these things where we we generalize a lot. But on a case-by-case -case basis, on in some cases, I would say, on films, like directors are like someone like James Cameron who's all over everything from the sound mm. to the production design like he's like very very clear on his vision and how he wants it to be manifested and then other directors I'm not going to name any names but I think do delegate a lot of this to ADs and other units and whatnot and take more of a kind of like an oversight role and they allow the people they hire to do their jobs very well so I, I it is hard there's not a catch-all thing like Beth what do you reckon we've been banging on for ages <laughs> I mean it is tricky, isn't it? I've, I guess the directors, it's so rare, especially with like, what's well, rare with any that, that there's a consistent director throughout. I mean, the only recent example I can think of is Mayor of Easttown, where it's been one director mm. across a whole miniseries. So it is, it, is, it is very tricky. It just feels like there's more plate spinning. I'm thinking as well of like, M. Night Shyamalan with Servant. We wouldn't have it without him at all. And he's committed himself. I mean, that is the kind of auteur that he is. He he becomes the whole mouthpiece for a project, um, which is what he's done with Servant, even though I've, he's only directed a handful of those episodes, mm. hasn't he? Even though he's, he's mm. written like hundreds of them. And I think it comes down to the profile as well, where we're seeing a shift of these big names from film moving over to television. It's very easy to get caught up in that kind of slightly more dazzling talent but yeah is it i'm thinking about it servant is such an interesting example funnily enough because servant is created by a british writer called tony baz gallop yeah who yeah. um who i interviewed years ago who um by the by wrote a really underrated um crime thriller called what remains starring russell tovey anyway in about two, uh, 2000 
12 or something. But he created Servant. I mean, he, I think even on the official, you know, the, the official credits created by Tony Baz Gallup. And yet I also, I'm like you, I think of it as an M. Night Shyamalan project. <laughs> yeah. and, I, and, I, and I can't shake that, even though I've written about it literally dozens of times. And I always, and I'm very, I'm very careful. I don't want it to sound like a complete, like, you know, oh, how brilliant I am. I just, I've, I, I try, always try and credit the, the writer in everything, you know, whether it's a film or TV I'm reviewing. So I always mention him, but I always think, fucking hell, this is such an M. Night Shyamalan thing. Yeah. And I, and I also go on to think, not only that, even though he didn't create it, Tony Buzzgallop did. Um, and then when I'm watching the episodes that I know are directed by him, I, my thought process is, oh, this is going to be better than all the other episodes. And yeah. do you know what? I, th- I, I think it is. I like. I, I do think. I, I genuinely think the M. You know, the M. Night Shyamalan directed episode in season one is the best episode. Um, but I, I, I can't necessarily separate it from the fact that I know he directed it and I'm assuming it's going to be better than the one directed by someone else who's not quite, you know, feel, got the doesn't quite feel like it's his mm. thing. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a really interesting example. And, and, you know, we talked about writers' rooms as well. Like so many, you may have a showrunner, but oftentimes there's a writing staff right? where they have lots of different people chipping in ideas and stuff. So there's no single voice, but there is, again, I guess, a creative hive mind pushing the show Mm. so it's not one person so we'll all credit it to the showrunner but there are lots of people but i mean maybe this just comes down to our need as people to you know personify any creative endeavor in a person to say this person made this because i can't list 15 people because that makes it cumbersome (laughs) succession is is an example of that isn't it what you were saying about you know the um the the, because succession you know is adam mckay directed the the um the first episode the pilot and um he kind of established helped establish the tone and i think you know a lot of um a lot of the credit goes to him even though he hasn't directed an episode since as far as i'm aware jesse armstrong gives a lot him a lot of the credit for kind of that that it's unique mix of the of the um comedy and the drama oh and by the way i've got to say of course the episode eight of succession which goes out today monday or went out is amazing and it's a complete is a complete like the switch from seven the 40th birthday episode which is is my favorite of all time to the to eight which is um the wedding of their mum um they all go to italy for this big wedding and the, 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 it's like the two sides of the show because that the, that one the the one in the fortieth birthday is all dark and in the club and it's horrendous and it's bleak and it's really grim and quite emotional and then it moves on to this one which is a sp- beautiful light sunny it- it- Italian setting this wedding and it's funny and light and then but then it goes really dark but just to say that the two <laughs> the two brilliant elements all the brilliant elements of Succession are summed up in those two episodes and I loved episode eight as much as I loved all the previous ones. Sorry, I've got sidetracked from the listener question. But I did mean to mention Succession, episode eight in the What Have We Been Watching section. There you go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Did we answer that question? I don't even know. Um, Well, I don't know either, but it's a really, really interesting subject. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I'm endlessly fascinated about it, yeah. Mm. And I and I think I take his point that the media as a whole bears some responsibility for being reductive in you know, in, in carrying across who is responsible for whether it be films, whether it be TV shows. I think it's very, because it's, it's just easier, isn't it? And it's, and it's you know, we find it easier to attribute it to a single person rather than to everyone. Yeah. But um, so so to everyone that we have marginalised while discussing shows over the course of this <laughs> podcast, all I can do is apologise. <laughs> whether you be a film writer or a TV director, um, we love you. 
promise. Time now, I think, for this week's guests. Uh, Black Comedy Landscapers airs on Sky this week and sees Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis as real-life couples Susan and Christopher Edwards, who were convicted of murder after two bodies were dug up in a back garden in Mansfield. Boyd spoke to Olivia and David a few short days ago to hear all about it over Zoom. Don't worry, he's not infected a pair of national treasures. They're absolutely fine. Hi. Hi. Hello. Thank you very much, Olivia and David, for joining yeah, us on the Planet TV podcast. Can you hear me? Hi, yes, yes, you yes, can. We're, we're just trying to see ourselves. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Sorry, we had to, I, I would have been there in person, but I've got COVID. So, um, oh, yeah, I'm no. sorry. How are you I'm doing? Very, How, I'm, are you I'm fine. Okay? Mild cold symptoms at, be- at worst. You're looking yeah. well. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Good. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> now then, more importantly, landscapers, what an extraordinary um, series this is. The first thing that struck me, having got to the end of episode three, is that by the time you get to that point in the series, it almost feels like it's about the idea of true crime drama mm. as it is actually about a true crime drama. If you see what I mean, it's interrogating, seems to me, the whole idea of creating a drama about a true crime. Does it feel like that way to you? Yes. I mean, it, it's, it is full of originality. I haven't seen it done this way before. And, and sort of, yes, yeah, sort of testing how has it been done previously and... and um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a show very much that, ex- apart from many, many other things that it is, explores the the notion of storytelling it, itself and uh, and and of of TV series itself and, and film. Um, you know, with a gradual taking apart, the deconstructing literally of the set, which actually happens in the credit sequence of the first episode, and uh, and in fact, from the very opening frame, we see that we're playing. With uh, these 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 tricks from uh, sh- sh- you know self consciously showing the beginning of filming and the hearing action and the turning on of a rain machine um, and those things I think you know what justifies all those in this particular show is you know that that blends in very neatly with one of the th- themes one of the details of the crime i.e. what they did with the money i.e. Susan's obsession with old. Hollywood and 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 the and 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 therefore storytelling itself, or you know, we use high noon. And the story they they sort of really went over and over and over again through fifteen years. A story they made up, which, when uh, in the face of uh, you know evidence and you know uh, being able to pinpoint the bullet wounds, it didn't hold up their story. Mm. But so that so that sort of unraveling and unpeeling, and um, which is mirrored in the set and everything. It's yeah. Yeah. I think it's frightfully it, clever. It's an extraordinary it thing. That it was something we asked when we were, were making it because it's very strange that when they arrive at King's Cross, Chris has this speech about whatever happens, just tell them the truth. And this is yeah. just between the two of them. Tell the truth and we'll be fine. Don't make anything up. Just tell them the truth. Now, what he's actually saying is tell them the story that we have made up, as we come to understand, because there's no way I don't think any viewer would think that their story is the real story because the evidence, evidence is too compelling. Uh, and we're told from the very beginning they were found guilty and convicted. So it's, that's a strange one. I think that was one of my biggest questions to Will when we were making it, going, what is he saying here? Because he's, he's, they, they know it's not the truth, but it's, is, is he that delusional that they've right. come to think that it is the truth? Is he doing it just for Susan or is it just part of their game that they're psychologically convincing each other that is the truth, so therefore they won't break it? It's, um, That's, um, I, can, I won't get this quite right, but there was some neurologist who was talking about the, the more times you tell a story incorrectly, it becomes the real story. So, ah. so you convince yourself. 
Oh, well, that's what's going on, yeah. isn't it? I could have said this months ago. <laughs> you should have said that in King's so Cross when we were shooting. That, that was all over the place. That, sorry. <laughs> that doesn't make total sense when you're watching it because when you're watching the, the, the show, your reality and fantasy is constantly shifting and you're, you're, I think our um, sympathies are constantly shifting. Um, and was that when, when Ed Sinclair created the whole thing, was he, what was, do you know what his primary interest was? Was it in this specific case of, of, of an amazing, I mean, an incredible story? Or was it the idea that of creating a show in which, you know, and you never know where you are and you're kind of you feeling kind of uncertain as to how the what whether what the truth is and what fiction is I, th- I think one of the things that was compelling to him was that uh it's it's sort of skated over that she suffered abuse at the hands of her father as a child and that wasn't really um used by anybody as i mean it's that's really deeply important you know that um to carry that your whole life it's not that it's it suffered. She suffered when she was a child, but she's fine now when she k- killed them. It's not how it works, and we all know that. But um, I think he just felt enormous sympathy for this woman who'd suffered, and and it was never taken into account when when um, they got to court. And I think he he wanted to explore, you know, maybe maybe they are just gentle, lovely people, and and extenuating circumstances, and we never know. We'll know what happened that night, but. People can only be pushed so far, and um, he was interested in in exploring it in a different way. I think. Yeah, that scene between with you and Felicity Montague as your mother is extraordinary. Um, yes, she's fabulous. Again, she is incredible. I mean, we used to see her as Lynn in Alan Partridge. Yeah, it's quite yeah. astonishing to see her doing that role and that scene with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when you and you know, it says at the beginning, "This is a true story," and the word "true" disappears. This is a story, so it's it's a, a big dollop of artistic license and what happened and everything, but face-to-face with someone who's saying, I knew about it. I mean, what would you do? And, I mean, weirdly, there's a gun in the house, which is not uh, okay. (laughs) um, (laughs) But, yes, you know, it's... It's not clear-cut, I think, is what Ed's saying. It's it's, it's not black and white. And um, and the the fantasy elements I just... I love that they're going off into... um, these different places to sort of hide and escape and um yeah i'm going off on a tangent i'm now doing oh, fair enough <laughs> were those were those scenes david the 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 incredible visuals of it that, that we get to see the police watching these scenes play out from the past of your characters and it becomes extremely kind of fantastical phantasmagorical was that all in the script originally or was that did that did will sharp the director bring some of that in no, that was that was absolutely in the script. In fact, it was referred to in Ed's word. Those sections of the script were called the myth, which was spelled M-I-T-H, which was, to my understanding, didn't have any particular meaning. It was just that, that when we read that in in the in the headings to the scenes, we knew, I think, almost entirely that we're back in 1998 at the time of the killing, and we're partly in the police investigation or we're in some kind of dream sequences or flashbacks and there are certainly scenes where we're going to jump from reality the colour scheme is different it's all red and green um, so the audience will never co- know they're called the myth and, and I think we should ignore the word you know the other spelling of myth it's not to do with that but um, no they were all completely absolutely there pretty much everything was there in, in the script that's what made it such an attractive mm. proposition right from the very start when I read it, because it was clear that this was something unique, uh, very different. Just when you thought, oh, okay, it's playing with timelines, we're going to flash back and we're going to flash forward, and there are several things, many things that do that these days. But it was 
it was doing that in such a new and original way. Um, uh, and it wasn't apparent from the very first few pages, I remember. I think something happened on about page four or five where I was like, oh, here we go. This is something. I think the, the prison cell opened up and it was, it was actually a scene that's not, didn't it got changed along the way. Remember, there used to be the grandfather climbing out of the oh, grave God, yes, or something, I, yeah. and the, the the prison floor opened up, and I was like, "Oh, we're in strange yeah. territory." That's wonderful. And then, <laughs> as I read the, through the script, it became more and more apparent that this was going to be a a, a a constant thing. And then it became increasingly surprising as it went on, which I think is what the effect it'll have on the audience. We'll never be able to anticipate what's coming next from shot to shot, certainly mm. from scene to scene, episode to episode. Just when yeah. you think you know what kind of show it is, you're going to get episode four where <laughs> it's going to just blow your socks off where it goes there because it's, um, you know, very um, – but but all in context. I don't yeah. think it's indulgent. I think it's entirely in context. No, I agree. And certainly Absolutely. Will's visual genius, you know, uh, made it possible. So um, what Ed's written, not every director would know how to do it and – and Will did, yeah. you know. I think the combination of the the, of mm. the two of them, these these two wonderfully, wonderfully imaginative men, the creative mm. flights that they both, uh, you know, in, encouraged with each other is, is you know, and, and then we were lucky enough to be cast in it. And it says, you know, we some, were the last bit, really. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Were you? But you, Olivia, you worked with Will on um, Flowers, which was which was in itself a kind of unique. Um, piece of work, uh, complete, very difficult to categorise. Was it your idea to bring him in to this, or, or was it coincidental? No, I can't remember how. I think uh, I can't remember when his name came up because Ed said, "Well, yeah, he would be able to see what I'm doing. I'm talking about." And I think Jane and Featherstone and Katie Carpenter and everyone at Sister had worked with Will and loved Will. Um, and I think during the discussions, it sort of it transpired that yes, this this would work. Um, I can't remember who I can't remember where where it came from first. Sure, it was it nice because when I was when I was told it was going to be uh, Will directing, I, di I didn't know I wasn't aware of Will, um, so I I looked him up on IMDb, uh, and, we, and I don't watch much television, but one thing I had watched was Flowers. And absolutely loved it. Mm. Just thought it was one of the best things I'd seen for a long time. And so I was just thrilled from that moment on going, oh, my God. And I had no idea he was also the actor in it. I, I, I didn't know the history of Flowers at all. I just, it had just been something I'd come across while flicking through the computer one night. But it's something I, I, watched, I watched it all. So I was, I was uh, thrilled it was him. Have you seen Louis Wayne, his film with... Um... Not yet. Uh -huh. I've seen a bit of it because no. I did the narration. So I've just seen those bits right. that I've done <laughs> yeah, right. in ADR, yes. but I haven't seen the whole film yet. No. Yeah. It's not out yet, is it? it I don't yeah. think oh, so, no. Yeah. No, it's, uh, as you get, to see, yeah, they're sending out, they're showing screenings of it um, already. But it, you can really tell his, that he's got this extraordinary way with, with tone. Like, because, I mean, in many ways, this is a funny, this is funny. So I wanted to ask about the tone. That, you mm. know, it's a very... There's amazingly funny bits by the police. The way the police behave it's brilliant. is yeah. really funny. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but and yet, obviously, it's a, it's a story about murder and abuse and all of that. Is that was it? Do you think that's one of the most difficult things, isn't it, getting the tone right of this kind of show? Yeah. Well, Will has funny bones. He, you know, comedy is his thing. And Ed writes some of the funniest dialogue I've I've ever read, particularly between the police and just a little quiet little little comments they make mm, just make me laugh mm, so much mm. so uh it's a, a lovely blend of two great or people who find the same things funny yeah they 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 they're the parts i found so 
refreshingly original yeah. as well when I first read it. I thought the character of Lansing is is such a strong, strong yeah. character, and you don't really get that in these kind of shows where 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 the the, the female uh, police inspector is just so well written and not not you know it's, it's it, it doesn't feel like it's for the sake of it. She's just a, a just just a great character, yeah. and Kato Flynn plays her. Just fantastically, and when we did the read through on Zoom, yeah, because we were in lockdown, yeah, and we first heard Kate doing it, it was like, oh my god, this is going to be better than I thought because <laughs> she's just fantastic. Um, so, and I and I think, yeah, that you know, those those the police investigation could have been one of the things that weren't fantastical about the show. It could have been much more procedural and let let since a lot of the uh, fantasy was in Susan's mind, therefore the police were not necessarily in that world. So what he's done is he's invited them into the myth. Uh, and so the investigation takes part in this uh, a surreal landscape, but it's also wonderfully funny because it might have been, just because we're dealing with a serious issue here, there's, there's, there's banter in every uh, uh, walk of life, in, in every, every job. And, and I, th- I just think that those... Three main characters bounce off each other so well. They're so wonderfully cast, and and yeah. and, and Samuel playing the sort of very very dry, <sighs> deadbeat stooge to Kate's character, and and I love their 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 relationship. That almost plays like a love story as well by the yeah. end, which the music helps. But there's the scene at the end between them both. You're like, oh, is this about them actually? Yeah. Um, and then it's then you, you you know your balloons deflated by that wonderful Lansing character who's like, no, fuck off. <laughs> you yeah. can be the wingman. You know? Yeah, it does. It does brilliantly mix like mon- moments of absolute mundanity with this high kind of um, fantastical feel. Like there's a bit in um, I think it's episode two, Olivia, where where um, she, Susan's in prison and she's talking about the scrambled eggs and she, she how, how hard it is to make scrambled yeah. eggs on a but mass just, scale. And that's just I think the brilliance of Ed as well. Just mm. that. Uh, that in that little moment you see so much of her. I'm so lonely. I'm desperate to talk to her, and I'm kind. And that sort of all comes out in a scrambled egg thing. Exactly. And, and the flashbacks to their scrambled eggs when they first yes, met. Yeah. And, eggs eggs yeah. are big in the whole, they are. The whole series <laughs> they are. for some reason. Even there's a... There's another egg. There's a, a square Scotch egg between the police as they're oh, driving. Oh, the long egg. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just to fill in on the drive down, <laughs> okay. just when the tension is at its height yeah. and we're driving down to London to go to King's Cross to arrest them, we have this very banal <laughs> conversation about a, a Scotch egg, uh, again, <laughs> which Lansing doesn't even know what they're talking about. He's not impressed at all. Yeah, uh, but it's it's typical of that kind of banter that is, uh, you know, may well be there in the worst of situations. People do talk crap sometimes. We never do. No, not as no, there is. There's a scene, Olivia, where you where where Susan gets absolutely hysterical in, in episode three. Like, I've never seen. I've e- seen it. Oh, I mean, spoiler. it's it's yeah. you get hysterical. <laughs> yeah, that oh, is, yeah. Oh my but, god. That, I mean, I've watched. I think I've seen every. You know, everything you've ever been in. But I don't think I've ever seen you reach that level of absolute hysteria. And, oh, and which kind of, bit was that in the prison? You know, cell? In the prison, yeah. When she's talking to the lawyer, talking to the lawyer, and you you you, you think oh. I think you've lost all hope, and you're furious and angry, and and yeah, and you really lose it amazingly. Yeah. Do you don't remember? <laughs> Do you, I do, do you remember? remember. How, did you psych yourself up for those big, that kind of big scene? She's a bit like that offset as well, so she can't always remember the difference between what's on camera and what's <laughs> not. And she's sometimes just freaking Fair out enough. in the yeah. catering truck, you know. <laughs> Someone will believe you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's the headline there. If this was, uh, yeah. <laughs> Living is a nightmare. Um, yeah. Well, I didn't know. That. I couldn't remember if that was in episode three because it was so long ago. If and we did it, but um, I remember now. Yeah, you do have to sort of. Um, because everyone's getting ready for a while, they're just twe- tweaking the lights and uh, 
and gorgeous Dippo is there and you do have to have a little, just give me a couple of minutes to try and get really moody as hell, um, which is an odd thing to do. It's an odd life, isn't it, what we do? But, um, mm. but really, a lot of actors are actually very happy people, I think partly because they get to scream and spit and snot everywhere and it's very cathartic. <laughs> so you, you don't have to do it you know, anywhere else right. in your life. Um, right, right. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you asked me. Sorry. Because it is such a visual um, feast and it has this, have you actually, when you're watching it back, is it a completely different experience? Like when you're, when you're making it, you're aware of just how elaborate it's going to be. And then when you're watching it back, the finished, the finished article, is it kind of weird to see how it's all come together? Well, no, I mean, I think we sort of knew, I mean, we're, you were saying earlier, we were standing in a, a sort of, an airfield, an airfield, an outdoor pub, you know, with a light over us and, right. Um, you you know, and obviously it's it's true to the script, so you can see. But it's what was great was turning up, going. How are they going to do that? Mm. Oh, that's how they're going to do it. So you were aware all the way through that it's you right. know, jumping to sort of quite theatrical things, extreme things. Um, and you could see also the art department had such fun. Yes. You go. Yeah. Could you please make a forest <laughs> inside the bedroom? Uh, could yeah. we have an open-sided pub in the darkness? Okay. Um, and they just, everybody rose to the occasion that everyone, it was such yeah. a happy job. I, th I think it made everyone very in inventive and, and, yeah. and, 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 and very creative, because not just for the actors, was this a pleasure? Um, you know, mm. it, it surely was for everybody else, for, for the camera department, the, the hair and makeup department, or having a ball, the costume department, yeah. already having a ball, because it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the thing anyone usually gets to do. So we were all realising it was a bit of a, not necessarily once in a lifetime, but but certainly something that doesn't come along very often, where one can be yeah. this playful and have a you know um, a, a totally new way of looking at things. And Julie Kendrick, uh, makeup designer, because for a while we didn't know if we were going to in picture flashback to the nineteen eighties, flashback to so she had invented this wig with pop studs, so the actors could take it off and go back to a place and put it back on again, really theatrical mm -hmm. and. We didn't end up doing it in picture like that, but everybody's going, fun, how are we going to make this happen? Wow. Yeah. I do take off my... You haven't seen that. Bit. Oh, that, is that in three then? No, in four. Oh. There's a bit because uh. you weren't there, but I actually do take off my wig. Like oh, a little, like, little hat. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Were you surprised? I mean, this is Ed, Ed's, Ed's first script, isn't it, I believe? Were you surprised by how kind of confident and ambitious and bold it was? Well, no, I I knew that his writing was amazing. He it was only him that didn't know, and just had to sort of. The moment he showed someone, everyone went, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" And I was really, I told you so. I knew. <laughs> yeah. Um, I knew that he could do it, and but he, you know, he'd go, oh, "It's not quite right. I don't want to. Oh, it's not quite." Um, but hopefully now he'll. I really want him to write master. Oh, he must. Yeah. Obviously, I had a very different experience because I didn't. When I read it, I didn't know. I didn't know Ed because I, I, I didn't. I'd never met Olivia, and I didn't know it was Olivia's husband. When I read it, it was just a script that came through my box. And when I read it, I was like, "My God, this is so good! What else has this guy written? Because this is fantastic!" And what's his? You know, and I went on IMDb and checked him out and realised he'd written nothing. You know, and I was like, "That can't be right!" And I think I spoke to my agent, and he was explained that it was Olivia's. Husband, and when I met Olivia and Ed, and it was like, I said, What else have you written? And you must have been writing for years. And he's nothing, I mean, he has been writing for years, yeah. but he's never showed it to anybody. Yeah. Um, and I just found that as, 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 a, as a writer myself, just to, to, to someone who, who not, 
you know, who'd hidden it away, writes a lot, but not showed it to many people. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of identified with that a little as well. Uh, and I thought, well, how glorious to have your first thing produced. And it's this, you know, oh. it's kind of a, a, a dream, I think, for, for it to be, you know, and so admired. We're, we're, you know, obviously, obviously Olivia's talking this way. It, it, it said, but I'm not, I'm not saying all this because it said, I just think it's, it's wonderful. And everyone thought it was, eh? the whole cast yeah. and the whole crew thought it was yeah. A very, very special piece of writing. And I think, wow, wonderful for Ed to hopefully feel that from us all. Yeah. Yeah. Tony, it reminded me a little bit of um, of Charlie Kaufman, some of the which, you know, films you've been in, David. Yeah. Like, right. the, just, you know, that just the kind of quirkiness and the weirdness and the, the all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a similar feeling to when you first read a Charlie Kaufman script. Oh, yes, yes, that's that's the, the other times I've been involved in things that are absolutely so out there. They're just a, a incredible pleasure to read and you read them like a novel and you're like my god this is charlie's mind i think there really is a wonderful comparison there and um oh, you know great. it's um I, I yes so that's that's the only t- other times in my career I've, I've been involved in something that's so fantastically imaginative and uh, uh and, and just extraordinary brilliant thanks uh, thank olivia you. and david thank you thank, thank you, you very, very much. much thank you that was Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis. Uh, shall we move on now to this week's news? What's been happening, people? We have a release date for Mrs. Maisel season four. Marvellous, marvellous Mrs. Maisel season four. Finally, um, we're getting it February 18th and a very, very sweet teaser trailer as well. Very excited. I'm very excited. I'm very, very excited. Probably the most excited for a show in 2022. Wow. I don't I don't, I don't wow. get on with Mrs. Maisel. I'm shocked and appalled to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> We've reviewed it on this podcast. And I seem to recall thinking it was fine, but never really being inspired yeah. to watch no. more of it. Do you know what? You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. It's <laughs> mm. wonderful yeah, high production yeah. from the creators of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> Yeah. It's not for Boyd, you. Boyd's sitting there agreeing with you. Boyd, have you watched every episode of Mrs. Maisel? No, but I do like the show. And, and I, I, um, but not enough I, to watch it. I resolved to watch every episode, even though I've only... I've watched probably half. I've watched probably Game of oh, Half. Fair enough. And fair enough. What, uh, Mrs. Maisel is an interesting show on, for various reasons. I think it is really good. But one of the most interesting things about it is that the it's a very Jewish show. It's all about you know a Jewish woman who becomes turns herself into a stand-up comedian and that whole world and of course Rachel Brosnan is not Jewish yeah. and um, it, you know that that is a whole top I'm not going to address the issue now <laughs> but let's just say it's interesting and I, would, I, would, I, I was also going to bring up the fact that it's it's th- this new story as well and also the the, the guest stars um, lined up did you see Beth for Kelly Bishop oh yeah Milo Milo Ventimiglia yes Jason Alexander fuck's sake actually George from George Costanza from Seinfeld and only John Waters John the Bloody Waters John Bloody Waters yep. film director uh, and all-round living legend so that is a good lineup of guest stars for I'm pretty fucking excited two Gilmore Girls uh, regulars there the first two so yeah yep. worlds colliding it's the Gilmore <sighs> Girls factor coming coming true I've got chills. I've got chills. It's me. It's my expanse meeting the Witcher. Yeah. <laughs> my witch spance. Your witch yes. spance. Your yes. witch spance. Yes. Yes. Your witch spance. Exactly. The marvelous that. witch spance. <laughs> That's a show I'd watch. Um, so, what else has been happening in the world? There was a trailer and indeed an air date announced for Reacher, the Jack Reacher mm. series, which Ooh. is coming to Amazon Prime next year. So, February fourth. 
uh, is when that's going to air. Now, there was a trailer released on Sunday. Did you guys watch the trailer? Yes, yes. No. Um, he, he can I, what's his name? The, the actor playing um, Alan Richson, and he they, they've kind of discovered him, haven't they? Like he he's uh, he's been. You know, he's been he's a couple unknown. of things, but he's not well known. Things, no. Yeah, but he fucking looks the part as my main thing. I mean, it's almost comical to think that Tom Cruise. I love, by the way, I love <laughs> the first um, film. Yeah, yeah, um, I thought it was great. But Tom Cruise absolutely just is not. It was always it was always ludicrous because obviously Tom Cruise is five foot nothing. Um, this guy, what is he? Six foot four, five or something? He's a he's massive. He physically looks, but also facially, I, he's roughly what I think of when I read those books, I have to say. And I've read, you know, most, if not all of those books. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I'm very excited about this whole project. So, I, and I thought tonally, they captured the kind of, you know, the kind of wry, wry humour of it. And so I thought was, I, was, I was really excited about, about the show. Yeah. So I, I'm also a, a Reacher fan. Um, I've read every book up until Lee Child essentially retired, and his brother now writes them. Yes, but um, yes, <laughs> so I've not read his brother's books yet. No, I'm, same, I'm not I'm boycotting same. them; I just haven't got to them. Yeah, so I, I didn't love this trailer. Oh, I've got to be honest with you. Why? I'm 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 holding out because you can't necessarily tell from a trailer, but it just the tone didn't quite land with me. Oh, okay. And it feels like I don't know. I, I'm I'm going to try and withhold judgment. Let's just say <laughs> I'm not quite sure they've nailed it. I may be a little too close to this. I'll be first to admit, um, as I do love these books. But uh, hmm. it feels I'm like not, what? I'm not going full hashtag not my reacher. But uh, oh, I'm okay. Like, hmm, okay. But we'll he looks see. the part, doesn't he? He, I mean, he's a big, he's a big lad. <laughs> he's a big lad, which is largely <laughs> I mean, what you need from this. Yeah, I mean, not just that, but his whole. The way he carries himself, and, and I think, and, and everything, I think it's, I think he looks, I think he looks great. So, yeah. well, it may okay. be great. It may be great. We shall wait mm. and see on February mm. the fourth when that airs on Prime Video. Um, there was another trailer also this week for Station Eleven, uh, the HBO Max miniseries, which I know for a fact that Beth has seen and is probably Ooh. embargoed. So she's clearly just going to sit there and smile smugly oh, and not I love say anything. The trailer, I love the trailer for Station Eleven. All I say is the trailer for Station Eleven is brilliant. <laughs> I see what you've done there. <laughs> I was yeah. not subtle, James. <laughs> no. <laughs> it does look good, though. It does look good. I'm, I'm very excited to see that. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's supposed to apocalyptic science fiction thing. Of course, you're excited about it. Yeah, it's it's very much my bag. I think that's uh, that's safe to say. But a great um, cast as well. I, I am mm, allowed to say the cast is great. Mm. So Mackenzie Davis, uh, Hamish Patel, and Laurie Petty, who I have an extremely soft spot for. So. <laughs> Lots of good oh, Laurie Petty is a legend. Yeah, yes. yeah, yes. fantastic. Yeah, oh, I'm excited about that as well. Even though I, I didn't see the trailer, but yeah, that is that is exciting. It's pandemic, isn't it? It's a flu pandemic. It's just yeah, pandemic. yeah it is. I mean, it hits a little yeah. close to home. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. There was some to do about the Game of Thrones, the prequel to the Game of Thrones spin-off which did not happen and made way for House of the Dragon. Uh, everyone was talking about they the HBO splurged 30 million on the pilots for the one that didn't go ahead and therefore ordered House of the Dragon director series because they didn't want to do that again. There was a lot of news stories about that, yeah, which I, I would argue is is a relatively unexciting piece of information. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I was surprised yeah. by it. I, I was surprised by the controversy. But it's from a book, isn't it? I think that clearly they're mm. plugging the book. This is feels mm. like a publisher-led yeah. 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 story yeah. because... I mean, it's not as interesting as the fact that they scrapped the whole um, pilot episode of Game of Thrones. I mean, that's... that's yeah. Uh, yeah. Recast it, yeah. Recast the whole thing. Mm. Change the whole fucking thing. So, 
you know, there's history there. And I also didn't see the logic. I, I remember I read one write-up of it in, in somewhere or other, not in Empire, honestly, or, or but somewhere so in an American, it was an American um, publication saying, well, the lesson learned. So they then went, so we've spent 30 million on this pilot, but it was the Jane Goldman-led project, wasn't mm. it? Um, prequel set thousands of years before. Um, so we're not going to do that again. So instead, we're going to get take this other one straight to series. And that, but what, oh, wait a minute, what's the logic in that? Because you're, there's an even bigger gamble, isn't it? Because if it, <laughs> if it doesn't work, then you're totally fucked because you've commissioned a 10 episode. <laughs> so I didn't get, I, logically, it didn't make any sense for the lessons they were trying to say the HBO executives had learned from the 30 million they spent on yes. the pilot. We wasted 30 or, million on one episode, so yeah. let's do 10. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that was, I didn't get the whole, what what they were trying to learn from that whole experience. But I thought, but yeah, I agree. It was not as fascinating. Yeah. Do you know this story? This is my favorite new story of the week. Okay. Do you know the story of Ricky Gervais and Green Light German Genius? Have you heard about this? No. no. Okay. So in 2019, Ricky Gervais tweeted praise for an actor called Kida Koda Ramadan, um, who's a ger- in a German series called Four Blocks. And Ricky Gervais is an aficionado, it's fair to say, of mostly foreign drama series. He's really into like Scandi noir shows and he trawls Netflix and the other streamers as well, I think, for, you know, um, uh, what's the, the, the Channel 4 one? Um, Water Presents, you know, he's a big fan of all mm. of these kind of fascinating foreign language, thrillers and dramas, etc. So in 2009, Twitter praised this about this for the German series Four Blocks that Kido Koda Ramadan um, was in. This tweet has inspired him, Ramadan, to create his own show called Greenlight, colon, German Genius, in which he tries, in, this is the premise of the show, he plays himself trying to persuade Ricky Gervais to let him make the German version of Extras. Right, with um, you know celebrity people coming in, and Ricky Gervais is going to be in it. So Ricky Gervais <laughs> is going to play himself in this series about in which a German guy tries to convince him to let him make a, a version of extras, and the whole thing comes from a tweet that Ricky Gervais wrote oh in two thousand and nineteen, and it's filming in Berlin now. Wow! How good is that? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a pretty good news story. I can't really top that. Yeah. Thanks. That's that's pretty wonderful. Pretty good sport as well on Gervais' part to be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Why I'll the fuck not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Elsewhere news: Cara Delevingne is joining Only yes. Murders in the Building season yes. two. I beg your pardon. Yes. Oh, well, as in you're surprised if she's in it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh, right. Okay, I was like, did I say something no, wrong? No, you were. <laughs> I'm only talking too loudly. <laughs> no, this is absolutely true. So she's going to be playing a sophisticated art world insider who becomes enmeshed in the mystery. But none of that matters because it was the bit at the bottom of this news story that I thought was the most pertinent, where they said that filming will not interfere with Delavine's shooting schedule for Carnival Row Season 2. As that has already wrapped earlier this year. Uh, and I said, yeah. Whoa, well, there we go. They're talking <laughs> about burying the lead. Put that up top, please. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. I yes. yes. I, 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 my eyebrow was raised a tad by the Cara Delevingne casting news. Yeah. Because let me say right now, I mean, she's fine in Carnival Row, but that film she's in that we often bring up because it's, it was, it was that, the, that terrible, what's that terrible film she was in? Well, which one? She's not really had the best. You know, the... Valerian, no, Valerian and the... Oh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Yeah. Yes. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Yeah, Luke Besson. Yes. She is particularly terrible in that, I think. She's yeah. She's okay shocking. in Paper Towns, though. She's like, oh, Dane DeHaan's terrible as well, mind you. Um, so it's nothing to do with her being a model, etc. But um, I was surprised, yeah, that uh, 
that yeah. she's in. But I, I, but you know, they can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. No, I trust Only everyone else in, in that show. So. I trust everyone fine. in that show. Yeah, so fine. Uh, the last thing that I have to mention is, obviously, I've been excited in the past that Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles are coming to television. But we have heard this week, which we kind <laughs> of face. suspected. <laughs> Best like, what the fuck? Oh, AMC the has given a serious order to Anne Rice's, which is kind of connected to Vampire Chronicles. Her Mayfair Witches series will be coming to television. Uh, so that exciting about the lives of the Mayfair Witches as a trilogy of novels, and then it kind of intertwines with the Vampire Chronicles as it goes along. Uh, but the Riceiverse, like they had the rights to this anyway, so I think it was only a matter of time, but it's going to turn up later next year on AMC. So Mayfair Witches, a go-go. Do you think it's going to be better or worse than the Witch Saga Chronicles or whatever the fuck mm. it's called? What's your witch, yeah. witchy witch... Hang on, are you are you are you in some way besmirching Fate the Winx Saga? Uh, <laughs> the witchy I witch. No, you're not doing that. Speaking of which, where is that? I was hoping that that would drop before the end of this year, and yet I do not see any Winx in my view list. So clearly not. No. Uh, yeah, there's a few shows that I was expecting to arrive um, yeah, and before have the end of the year that are, that are not doing so. Yes, mm. um, it's interesting. But none of that mm. really matters because we did no. get The Expanse. And on that note, oh. I do think it's time. I do think it's time that we move on to the review section and we begin, of course, where else, with the televisual event of 2021, the sixth and final <laughs> season of The Expanse, where we rejoin the crew of the Rosinante as they try to stop rogue belter insurrectionist Marco Inaros from flinging great big fuck-off asteroids at the Earth and put an end to whatever he and the rogue elements of the Martian Navy are doing beyond the ring gate. Do the Martians really have the proto-molecule? Did Marco really off Anderson Dawes? Can Naomi lead Philip to redemption? Will the Rossi's crew find a way to defeat the Martian's stealth tech? Will Drummer be able to kill her own people and turn her back on the belt for the greater good? Will Secretary General Avasarala tell reporters to fuck off at least once an episode? Beth, what say you? <laughs> Don't you dare. Don't you dare bring this on me. Oh, James, I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing on this. <laughs> what? You want me to lead on this one, Beth? No, 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 no. Oh, there'll be no, there'll be no rescuing of Beth. There'll be yeah. no rescuing of Beth. Beth, tell me what you thought about this sight unseen first episode of the final season of The Expanse, a show which, and I've always admired this about it, leans into the fact that it is incredibly deep and complicated and that you really do have to watch every episode to understand it. Yeah, and yet I have watched none. And uh, on top of that, I mean, the odds were stacked in my fucking favour from the off. We couldn't get hold of the screeners for one. I've, it's been a that very angry week for me. Like, I was furious <laughs> at the amount of effort we had to put into obtaining the fucking screeners in the first place. And then when I finally got through the four stages of, of whatever authentication I had to do, there was a watermark the size of my head across the whole thing. <laughs> And I, and I know, like, first of all, fucking problems, but it'd be nice to see someone's face in close-up <laughs> or, like, read an important bit of information. You know, there is something quite satisfying about seeing your own face, like, name blasted back at you, but I couldn't see half of it. Yeah. Um, talking of crediting, talking of crediting who writes and directs things, sorry, on TV, it would be, <laughs> we, we would credit, be able to credit who wrote and directs this episode of The Expanse, but we couldn't see it because our names were it. plastered all over the middle of the screen, literally obscuring the credits as to who wrote and directed. Anyway, carry on, sorry. I wrote, I was solely responsible for that first day. I mean, I, tr I did try, I really did, and I thought, I don't know, 
the scenery was nice. Uh, <laughs> there was, um, you know, there was some saucy bits. There was some fighting. There was a chanting of a man's name I didn't understand, and he got up on a platform. And Marco, 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 Marco. Marco's significant and he got up on a platform (laughs) people continue to shout his name and he sort of had some swagger to him there was a sort of magnetic field that was apparently going to suck someone into it at one stage and and that was mildly threatening um I, yeah, I mean, I mean, what do you want from me? I, I, don't know, I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know what the world is. I don't know. I mean, I tried to keep up with the 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 opening, which explained some of what was going on, but I didn't understand a fucking word you just said. So, I mean, it, again, it was up against me from the off. It, it looks pretty nice, I guess. Like uh, some of the performances were were good. Some of them were. Yeah, you must have loved Shoreg <laughs> Dashlu as General Shoreg, Secretary yeah. Christian like yeah. Avasarala. Beef, beefcake. Where, where's no, no, no. no. <laughs> it's the it's the lady in charge the of lady. Earth forces. <laughs> right. Yeah, the no, sweary she, lady with the with the, the sweary lady with the excellent from, voice. Yes, that's who with we're the excellent yes. voice. Yeah. No, Tell the other one to fuck off. She was great. Uh, I really did try. <laughs> I really did, but I just, I, I, I really do got nothing. You know, when Boy just shrugged the other day, at, 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 <laughs> was it Kevin? He was like, shrug. I, I, that's, that's all I can do here. And I don't didn't think you, it's my fault. Didn't you like the fact that Philippe, I believe, Philippe Inarus, yep. the, um, the, Marco's, Marco, Marco, Marco's Marco son, son yeah. um, arrives by shagging this uh, woman who shall remain nameless, um, uh, you know, the first we but see she is shagging this woman, and she is literally yeah, nameless. No, yeah, and literally. Then you never oh yeah, see no. Her again, oh, so. <laughs> uh, that's that. I'm making that point. Yeah, indeed. So she's shagging this faceless woman yeah. for like, you know, and that's how. We, then he, he he finishes, you know, wipes himself down, goes and it goes and sees dad, and then start tries to pull the barmaid. Uh, one second later, like, still, yeah. <laughs> like sweat still pouring from him. He is he is hilarious. That character. Do you know what he reminded me of? And and his. The scenes with him and his dad and his buddies, who like kind of like sitting in some kind of like in their in on this ship in their quarters, it reminded me of Starship Troopers. And I suddenly realised this is like <laughs> it's a bit like Starship Troopers meets Game of Thrones in space. That's how I regard. <laughs> it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and on that, from that, so but what what's interesting is because I because James is a complete and utter shameless fascist, so. We reviewed the first episode of the previous season of The Expanse. There's no other show the, in the world. And the season before that. And the season before. There's no other show in the world. Well, mostly, one of our rules on this podcast is we prioritize new shows. So we don't. Yeah. We very rarely right, review yeah. seasons four, five, six of yeah. some fucking show. Yeah. Right? But because yeah. it's The Expanse, I've watched one or two episodes of the last three seasons, and I still don't have a fucking clue what's going no. on. And, but I still kind of enjoy it because it is quite funny and entertaining i like sure i could issue swearing every literally every line of dialogue she's telling someone to fuck off yeah including her own publicist woman um and i didn't understand the what the hell the the opening scene the prologue thing with this girl it was just like something out of avatar um i had no idea what the fuck was going on there or what connection that had with the rest of the show um but i did kind of enjoy i enjoy the i enjoy it's quite rollicking good fun in various ways and i say and i like i love starship troopers the film it's fucking batshit and i like and it's got some of that batshitness particularly in the inaros 
um, father and son and those characters. But equally, it's massively retrograde in its like, th- th- there's various women who are just there to kind of literally stroke the Anaurises, as yeah. far as I can make, make out. It's not literally progressive. No. No. no, 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 no. It's like, you know, season one of Game of Thrones rather than season six of Game yeah. of Thrones. Um, oh. And so, oh, James is getting ready James to defend this. I was just going to say, on that particular point, I would not say the show is regressive in that regard. What I would say is that particular use of those characters to highlight yes. character flaws in them was yes. maybe a little bit ham-fisted. <laughs> yes. Uh, and Are you I, criticizing I definitely... the expense, James? I know, I'm I know, sorry. I know. It makes me uncomfortable too. But yes, yeah. that maybe wasn't the most sort of deft work. In their defense, I've only got six episodes this season, so maybe they just <laughs> had to get through it. But Philippe yeah. is having his own kind of breakdown, and I think that was trying to, to He really you know, is. He really, and that. yet, you know, he's, he's bellendery. I mean, he's the, the biggest bellend of bellends. Yeah. And yet he is kind of the most compelling character, at least in this episode, I've thought, because he is such a fucking twat. Um, and the way they introduce him, the way they depict him as being this absolute fuckwit um, who goes bonkers for seemingly no reason. Um, well, in fairness, uh, he did kill millions fairness. of people last season. Right. So. Okay, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he's having some difficulty dealing with that. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. But so I can I can see this. I think I probably said this for the when I reviewed for the other ones that we reviewed for no good reason, is that I can totally see why James is obsessed with this show. Um, by the way, right, can I, 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 when I was watching, I was thinking, because this is based on books, isn't it? So you've read is, these yes. books. You've read these books. I have them all on my shelf here. I bought wow. them all when the last wow. previous season finished wow. because I was like wow. at a loss. But I didn't yeah. want to read them until I finished the series because okay. I think they, they differ. Suddenly some of the characters are very okay. different. And I thought I'd rather finish the series that I love first and then I'll go back and read the books. Okay. Because what I've, I may have asked this before, but I'm genuinely fascinated by the fact that you, your brain, you have a certain type of brain <laughs> that, can, that loves and completely yeah. absorbs the information and the plotting and the characters of a massive 56-episode, 12-volume fantasy thing, you, you, you can understand all the lore and the world-building and all of that and the, and the rules of the world like almost instantly and retain it. I, I, do you know what? I literally cannot do that. I do not have the capacity to read or watch this stuff I can enjoy it for what it is, and I, and I think I can know a good one from a bad one or whatever. Yeah. But I just it really it's really difficult for me to keep track of the multiple strands, the multiple settings and characters, and I have to really focus and concentrate. Whereas you and Helen O'Hara is the same, isn't she? You and Helen O'Hara yeah. have this for me almost mystical ability <laughs> to immerse yourselves in this stuff, these epic, epic, multi-volume, multi-series fantasy things and 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 you and you can talk about it with such knowledge and you can reel off the character names as you love to do but it's a real skill i and i literally have a different and i'm fast i think there's a like a thesis to be written about what kind of brain you need to be able to do that because i literally cannot do that i have to have a really strong connection with at least one or two characters to be able to like actually learn about those worlds mm. like I, I need yeah. i need someone to really back um whereas i think yeah yeah you're right it's yeah. kind of a whole different personality yeah <laughs> a few yeah. words for that I- kind of personality but <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, I mean, that yeah. may well be true. But I think it comes down to the different ways in which we watch things. Like, Helen actually is slightly different to me. Like, Helen, Helen, I think, straddles both worlds. Because I like to think that, I mean, you tell me if, I, if I'm wrong, but I, I think when you guys watch shows, you watch shows. You are watching a show. You are appreciating the craft that goes into Your critical faculties are probably firing. You're looking at the writing. You're looking at the direction. You're looking at the way it's put together. I don't see any of that stuff when I watch a thing. When I watch a show, I'm in the show. I literally exist in that world for whatever the duration of that show or that film is. So the only stuff I see is the world and the story and the world building because that's where I am for the duration of it. And that's what I take away from it. So if I'm reviewing something, I actually have to kind of force myself to step back and experience it, which actually ruins my enjoyment of whatever it is I'm watching because I can't kind of project into it. Yeah. So for me, like with Game of Thrones, like, I, I, you know, they're like, oh, set design costumes. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I am here for the Night's Watch and the lore and the, the White Walkers and the, you know, th- this person, I can name you all the King's Guard and stuff because I've just been hanging out with them. Like, that's where my kind of head is at. Right. And these are the kind of books I like. I love speculative fiction. I love, um, you know, intricate, really detailed world building. And frankly, the more information, the more detailed, the more arcane it is, the absolute better for me. I want it so dense. It's it's almost impenetrable, and that is basically where I live. And, you know, weirdly, what almost offends me is when people do this kind of stuff and make it very surface level and yeah. really easy to follow. Because I'm like, well, this is a fucking waste of my time. <laughs> um, and that's why I love The Expanse. Yeah, The Expanse is really good because The Expanse has never really gone out of its way to try and be accessible. Like, okay, yeah, it starts with a murder mystery, which is relatively accessible, but in space. But the thing about The Expanse is it's about the sort of Machiavellian maneuverings of the political structure of the solar system. So the way this kind of series works is, broadly speaking, The Expanse is the expanse of our solar system. And it's broadly split into three factions. You've got Earth, the Earthers as the belt of them, which is like obviously where all people came from. You've got Mars. And Mars is a heavily militaristic society, but they have resource problems because obviously it's not the most hospitable planet that's being terraformed, but they have food and supply issues, but they've got a very powerful navy. And then you've got the belt, who are essentially the underclass. And these are people who work in these sort of mines of the asteroid belts. They essentially exist on space stations. And in the books, I think they're, they're sort of longer. They've got elongated skeletons because they exist entirely in, in zero gravity. And in the series, they have that very heavily accented kind of Creole patois of the Belta Loda, which is why they will speak like that. And as this series has gone on, you've had, you know, a murder mystery. You've had like a bioweapon, which is actually extraterrestrial in origin. You've had gates leading to other parts of the galaxy. So all these things have been happening. But ultimately, at its core, it is a power struggle between these three forces, this sort of underclass, this sort of underdog class and then these two warring titans being earth and mars and where we are at this point marco the guy whose name they were chanting is leader of this kind of splinter faction he's essentially replaced um remember when jared harris was on talking about chernobyl and i just wanted to talk about the expanse with him boy you will remember that oh Um, yeah he was essentially the head of the belters then now it's this guy marcus he's basically a terrorist he's an insurrectionist he's he's united the belt and he has used sort of um stealth tech to hide basically he's thrown asteroids earth and killed millions of people that's why his son's having a bit of a meltdown um but he's done that because he's asserting belter independence and he's changing the balance of power in the solar system so all the stuff that's happening it's like it's these large sort of political machinations that i really enjoy and like game of thrones has that as well because it's plots Mm. within plots it's character plots that's why you're uh, absolutely right it's a great analogy boy it's a great it is exactly like that but it's the overarching kind of political Mm. sort of you know maneuverings i really really like about this add to that the fact that this is very hard sci-fi in that it is really based in physics they've gone out of their way in this to have no star trek star magic solutions to anything there's no magic in this everything in it is rooted in science and they have i've seen they've done some fascinating sort of documentaries on this about how 
Like, notice they all have anti-gravity boots because there's no gravity in space. But the way the ships are laid out, the ships are... So if you look at the ship uh, pointing upwards like a rocket, that's where all the decks are based. So when the boost, when the thrust of the ship goes forward, it creates artificial gravity via thrust. So it pushes them down against the deck plates there. That's cool. Notice how all their hair is tightly contained in, like, buns or whatever it is because, uh, oh, obviously, you know what? otherwise it would be floating around them like a halo. <laughs> I was going to mention the bun. Gravity. The fucking buns. Like, yeah, it's like big on buns. It's man buns, girl buns, buns everywhere. <laughs> it's a total battle of the buns. It's yeah, ridiculous. Guns out, buns out. Yeah. But, that is, but again, it's that because is, it's set it's zero mm, gravity. That is amazing. And, and it spends an inordinately long period of time um, showing you the fixing of things that go wrong on the outside yes. of spaceships. Yes. Yeah, frankly. <laughs> but it's great. And, <laughs> and, and for me, what works so much about this is because there's a, there's a, a sort of a concrete kind of tangible realism to it like i can access that world so easily because it's so believable they give you so many access points because it's rooted in science and because everything they do scientifically they talk to a consultant they really think through and i love that about it like they were saying like you know take a take um uh, alien resurrection you know how the alien gets sucked out of that little hole you know when she like she, she throws yeah. the acid on the window and the alien gets sucked out into the vacuum of space and i remember seeing an expanse document they were like they were like that isn't physics like you could stick your hand over that hole and just block it with your hand you get a blood blister but that's basically the extent of it because if you've ever you know like the pull of a vacuum like it will hurt but it's not going to suck you through a hole it's not that powerful because science fiction has historically lied to us. But I like that they put this level of thought into this shit. Mm. Plus, the characters are brilliant. <laughs> I think the writing is great. It's got a brilliant dark thread of humour all the way through it. And it has evolved and changed, and it's gone. And uh, when it shifted from sci-fi when it got cancelled to uh streaming when it went to amazon you know then obviously we got nice nice swearing as well which was brilliant which they made the most of and shoriag dashlu who delivers swear words better than anyone else in the world uh <laughs> makes the absolute most of that uh i yeah i there's something about the show that i just fucking love i don't know if that's coming across um, but yeah. it's just it's magnificent i love it so <sighs> much because i think this show sucks me in in a way that very few other shows do like it is all consuming like it absorbs me like um, a vacuum so. in space like a vacuum <laughs> yes yeah. like a yeah. vacuum boy yeah. it sucks me in. <laughs> yeah. yeah oh man who's your favorite character I can't, that's like asking me to pick my children i can't possibly do that i mean i love the crew of the rossi i do uh but honestly avasarala might be my favorite character i think she's just so good but um okay. but yeah amos or, or amos the she? brawny guy that you were referring to uh mm. beth you were referring to amos amos he's good as well because he's kind of like a a functioning sociopath and he's just a really interesting character that way and he like because he, he's someone who doesn't have a moral compass so attaches himself to people who he thinks can guide him you know it, it, like, again i find that the psychology of that character fascinating um yeah it i like it I'm, I'm happy you're happy. Yeah, we're You say this, but when, when uh, Terry watched the first episode of season four, which had a kind of standard only quality to it because it was through the ring, so you didn't need to know as much with that one. She really enjoyed it. Obviously didn't watch anymore, but she actually did no. like it. <laughs> okay. um, and it is a great series. And I know neither of you are likely to go back and watch it from the beginning, but you absolutely should <laughs> because it is genuinely, to my mind, one of the best shows on television, and I think I'm not it's sure. glorious. I'm not sure I want to watch the pre-swearing days. <laughs> no, it's still good. It's still okay. good. It's not sweary, but it's still great. Buzz, no, you get loads right. of great Jared Harris back then as well. Oh, okay. Um, right. It's, it's a magnificent show. Jared Harris is really cool of the mark in this stuff, considering Foundation and, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Wow. He's, he's so good at this. But look, The Expanse, the final season of The Expanse airs on Amazon on beginning, it's dropping weekly, beginning Friday, December 10th. I have, there's only six episodes this season. I have all six. And I'm now, my, my proper conundrum at the moment is, do I watch them all with my name obscuring most of the action now, this weekend, or do I wait and watch them weekly? And I'm really struggling with that decision. <laughs> I want to watch yeah. it beautifully in 4K without any distractions. I don't want my email address across the middle of the screen, so it's basically unintelligible, but I'm not sure I can wait. But anyway, that's my problem to deal with. For the rest of you, I really, really, really cannot, cannot possibly recommend enough that over the course of this Christmas, when you are stuck at home, you fire up Prime Video, you go back to season one of The Expanse and find out what all the fuss is about and why I've been banging on about it. Do that for me. Anyway, next up this week, we have Ragdoll on Alibi, which aired last month in the US and is based on the novel of the same name by author Daniel Cole. And this one sees six people murdered and sewn together into a ragdoll of human remains, which is just lovely. <laughs> Boydie, <laughs> please tell me more about this. Well, it is um, produced by um, the people who give us Killing Eve, um, uh, Sally Woodward Sally Wood Gentle and her company. Freddie Cyborn is the lead writer and created it, and he has written episodes of Killing Eve. Um, and what I would say it has in common with Killing Eve is definitely a kind of wryly funny um, spin on the crime genre, on the, in this case, the serial killer thriller genre. There's a lot of, I wrote down words like goofy, um, hokum, uh, um, and, 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 um, uh, and I use those, do you know what, in this particular case, I'm, I'm here for Goofy Hokum. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, yes. it is, it does tread the line. So Henry Lloyd Hughes plays DS Nathan Rose, who we first see him is, 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 is kind of involved in the, in a, difficult case of a, of a killer and in the courtroom he leaps <laughs> leaps across the, the uh, courtroom to attack physically attack this guy who's going to get acquitted due to a technicality in the evidence and then he's kind of disgraced and he ends up being outcast but then he's back now and this is his first case back and it's a serial killer where this grotesque body has been put together from the limbs and remains of different dead Corpses, and it and um, uh, Henry Lloyd Hughes' character is, is is in that investigation with his colleagues um, DC Lake Edmonds, played by Lucy Hale, Di Emily Baxter, played by Felisa Teixeira, Michael Smiley is in there. I love Michael yes. Smiley; can do no wrong. He pops up um, also as DS Finley, and Natasha Little plays the brilliantly over the top kind of tabloid journalist who's constantly trying to get information about the case, and who Henry Lloyd Hughes knows from pr previous uh, previous action um philip phil davis pops up as the mayor of london in a hilarious turn he's kind of like posh cockney phil davis um, and the the um the narrative is built around the fact that the whoever this killer is is he's he lists handily gives them a list of the people who are going to die and including for example um uh phil davis's mayor and so the show it's one of those shows where it's constantly flashing back as well to what happened with Henry Lloyd Hughes' character, why, why he fucked up this case, why he was outcast, and um, exactly, and you're not sure. It's, it's also one of those shows where it's constantly, constantly kind of playing with you as to whether it's all going on possibly in Henry Lloyd Hughes' mind mm. or 
is he just having these nightmares and dream sequences where he's kind of playing out the trauma that he's been through in his previous case that he fucked up? So it's um, it's kind of it, there are lots. Of, I, I do I enjoyed it. The bottom line is I enjoyed it. I love a good serial killer, preposterous, ludicrous serial killer thriller with a kind of wryly, darkly funny tone to it. And this is definitely trying to be funny um, as almost as much as it's trying to be dramatic and thrilling. And it's not actually not that thrilling, I would say. Um, yeah. So it kind of errs on the side of the of the dark humour rather than, you know, some kind of like seven style intensity of serial killer um, um, stories. And I enjoyed it. It's a little bit, I often think this with alibi shows, and this may be, you know, I mean, this may be my own prejudice and my own kind of, you know, when you're aware that something is an alibi show, I often think, oh, is it going to be that lavish? And is it going to be, the production value is going to be that spectacular? And I feel it's, it feels like slightly a notch below what you kind of necessarily might want from a production values of this kind of show. But that may be my own prejudice that I know it's on Alibi and I'm slightly being unfair <laughs> in that way. Because AMC, where as, as, as James said, it aired in the States, obviously is full of lavish, spectacular shows. And I presume they it's a co-production that they invested some money in it. But there are moments in it where I felt like it felt a little bit not as quite as... Um, you know, beautiful as it could be or something. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? And my other issue, and I ha- this is an issue I have with lots of these kind of crime thrillers particularly, I do feel that the device of having a weird moment, a weird kind of visual or kind of quirky, bizarre sequence involving the protagonist that gets weirder and weirder and weirder and you're like what the fuck's going on here and then it turns out to be a dream sequence Uh, or a nightmare that he's having fucking do me a favor (laughs) i don't need any i don't need any more of those and it's such a do you know what for me it's like a real it's like a it's it's literally it's i do think it's laziness yeah i do think like in order to make something seem weirder and quirkier and more bizarre than it really is, yeah. is to give us a sequence that turns out to be a nightmare that the main character's having. Yeah. And it happens in e- almost every, and it's not just Ragdoll, but I just finally kind of felt like I had to mention it with Ragdoll because it happens quite a lot in Ragdoll. And, and, and I know part of the whole tissue of it is what's real and what isn't real, what's going on in people's minds and what isn't ha- actually happening. And, and I like that disconcerting nature, but equally... It's just a bit of a device that I've seen so many times before. But that's not getting in the way of me enjoying it. I am enjoying it so far. I've watched the first two episodes. And it's kind of, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you on that. And I hate as well this new kind of meta take on it where it's like, they think they're in a nightmare and then they wake up and then they're in another nightmare within the nightmare and then they wake up. It's like, that's not smarter. That's just dumb on dumb, basically. Stop it. Um, So I completely agree with you on there. And it does feel slightly like ground well trodden because of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, because of what Killing Eve's done, because of this new wry, dark wit that exists within this, um, you know, otherwise quite tired genre, I guess. Um, but I, do you know what, when we were reviewing crime a few weeks ago and I was saying, I want to see contemporary Evan Welsh, I want to see him shake things off mm. a bit, come into the modern day. This is what I envision, maybe without the girl from Pretty Little Liars in it, but <laughs> this kind of sort of fun shake up, still quite shocking, you know, violent, grotesque um, crime that, that 
is sort of the thing that gets everything ticking along. But with well-rounded, you know, progressive characters, I really liked um, this this Emily Baxter in it. And, you know, again, I don't know why <laughs> Lucy Hale, the girl from Pretty Little Liars, is in this, but she's pretty great. Like, she gets to come in and basically be the what the fuck is going on person. And she does that really well with just like, a kind of tinge of cringy Americanism where she kind of gets out the mint to burn around the body and you're like, come on, love. But similarly, the the two DIs that she's with are cracking jokes about, okay, which corpse is worse in a game of which corpse is worse. Um, so yeah, I, I think this was quite fun, as you say. I, I mean, I've, I've anything Michael Smiley's in, I will watch to the end of the mm. days. I maintain he had, without giving spoilers away, in a film, the best death of this year. So I, mm. I just love that he doesn't take himself very seriously and is very well cast for this. Um, yeah, good fun. I'll probably watch the rest of it. Um, yeah, I just this is this is what I wanted to see with Evan Welsh. I think it's, it it probably does yeah, borrow right. from that in quite a lot of ways. And this is what I would have liked to yes. have seen him see something quite bombastic and silly, but similarly violent um, and quite gripping yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I totally forgot about crime, the Evan Welsh, and you're right. This is <laughs> I everything. I don't blame that- you. Yeah, but this is this is this is this is so much better, isn't it? This is this is what that was trying to do, but it's so much more fun. I think it's so much more coherent, even within all the kind of what's real and what isn't real element to it. It absolutely it, it, it pisses all over. If you pardon me, if you pardon my my language, um, uh, crime. Yeah. Oh, James. I know. I. I, uh. I know. I, I, I'm trying to think. I, what I mean. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was fine. Like, the thing that I guess I bumped on most of all was the sort of slight grating of tones in that you've got a serial killer who burns people alive. You've got a serial killer who literally murders a bunch of people and then sews their body parts together. So you have some quite graphic, grim visuals. It's quite a nasty subject matter. And then this thread of kind of pitch black humor all the way through it is dialed up surprisingly high. Like, it's not like, oh, there's the occasional, you know, aside little bit of levity in there. Like, at, at times you're like, this is pushing comedy territory. <laughs> and it's weirding me out a little bit because it's it's like, on, on you know, on the one hand, it's like a, it's a whatever it is, like 45 minute serial killer crime drama, but it's largely played for laughs to the point where some of the gags are not just, oh, these are witty characters saying funny things. Mm. There's some absurdity to some of the humor as well and i think that that uh, going back to kind of how we talk about how we watch tv shows things like that pull me out of the narrative like i know where i am if i'm in a sort of like serial killer drama that's where i am and like when it starts to get into absurdist comedy those two competing things kick me out of the narrative a little bit and i find it a little bit hard to access so uh, I, I you know it's a bit trashy i quite enjoyed it but probably not enough to watch any more yeah. Oh, I'll definitely watch more. Yeah, I'll definitely watch more. If only that Freddie Seibold, who, who wrote it, is mostly known as a comedy writer. He wrote yeah. Bounty Hunters, yeah. Jack Whitehall. Um, he, you know, uh, and and so it, it's not. It didn't surprise me. It's that's very interesting. That I, I knew you were going to say that the comedy. It was. <laughs> it, is this a comedy? What is it? Yeah, I yeah, knew yeah, you were going to yeah. say that because of the. But I, I, I like the fact that it's a comedy. Pretty yeah. much, is a comedy. I mean, yeah. it really is. I love that that kind of absurdist comedy. I mean, it reminds me of kind of like some of Ben Wheatley's films which again lends yeah. to the Michael Smiley universe in that you know yeah. and, I, and I like these kind of wicked grisly twists of the knife so it works it works very well for me like actually. I'm not trying to pigeonhole things into genres and like be like no you must either be a comedy or a drama you cannot be both I think there's room for things but for me it's not about humour it's about 
reality. So not to get all kind of metaphysical, but for me, like comedy and drama exist in different sort of planes of the multiverse. Like you have, you have like, no, I'm what? absolutely serious. I'm making this analogies up as I go along and that yeah. may become apparent very okay. quickly. But, but no, but seriously, like, so a drama is something where it is grounded. You can access it. Like there's a, a suspension of disbelief, sure, but you know what the parameters are. You know where you're operating. And then comedies exist in this weird, absurdist, other plane of existence where the normal rules of society and humans don't apply. No, sorry, sorry. No, no, you're talking, no, 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 talking absolute shit. No, in fact, no. yeah, because in fact, all that's happening in this show is a great example of it. All that you can't yeah. process, it's actually more, James, it's more realistic to have the police characters in this thing joking with each other and being wryly funny because that's what it's like in real life. People yeah. say funny things to each other. Of course they do. It's, of course they do. And that's, and that's, that's all that's happening. But why is that less real? It's more because, realistic. Because I'm, what I'm saying, it because was the James type like of humor. James is my comedy. It's not just that I don't like comedy. No. It's types of comedy. Like I'm saying, like, like the West Wing is a drama and it's really fucking funny. But the humor is absolutely believable within the bounds of that dramatic situation that this is how people would talk and this is how people would act. And my thing with this is because the comedy sort of verged on absurdist at time, it didn't feel believable within that situation. It wasn't just like police gallows humor. This was, oh, this is a comedy like we're playing this for actual laughs and i think for me that those two things didn't didn't blend together enough for me to for me to buy into it i'm not whether that was a review or a fascinating insight into my psyche is very hard to say we have learned yeah. all about james this episode i know yeah. more about james than you about myself right now <laughs> yeah well Comedy slash drama Ragdoll does air on <laughs> tonight, Monday, the 6th of December at 9 p.m. <laughs> and finally, this week, we have Landscapers, which you have already heard about. This is created by Ed Sinclair and directed by Will Sharp. Uh, this tells the true story of Susan and Christopher Edwards, who were arrested for the murder of Susan's parents after returning from being on the run in France. Beth, to borrow a phrase from this show, would you eat a croissant out of a bin for landscapers? Oh, and then Sam. But I will just say I'm looking on the Rotten Tomatoes page in under genres. It says drama, comedy and crime. So Christ, <laughs> yeah. how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Got strap in. Um, I would yes so yes I, I we've we've touched on the story here it's about this this married couple kind of an Ethel and Ernest type get up very sweet um sentimental romantic couple played by two incredibly romantic sweet well Judas has done a few <laughs> few scary roles in his time but generally these these wonderful national treasures thrown together in this like effortless marriage um and they're, you know, just pottering about Paris, which, by the way, is Harlow in Essex. So I was actually staying in Harlow during lockdown while they were filming this in the park. So I was wow. looking at Harlow Town Park, which they truly tried to pull off as Paris. Love them. Um, <laughs> but yes, they're pottering about Paris, just just sort of having a nice time. But something is a little bit off. And I think the pacing here is wonderful because things start to sort of seep into the reality here. Um, little kind of hyper-real moments are baked in. So like Olivia Comer's character is is shopping around a, a, a Parisian shop with cinema memorabilia on it. And suddenly there's this kind of flashback of David Dunis pivoting with a gun dressed as a cowboy. And you start to think, okay, well, this could go either horribly wrong or wonderfully. Um, and then it starts to kind of, yeah, come to light that you've seen David Thewlis' character go for a job interview and, you know, 
a kiss on the cheek and he's out the door. But, you know, once the door's shut, you see that actually he's in quite a desperate place, um, which causes him to make a phone call, which then leads to police involvement. Things kind of spiral from there. Um, but it's got this, yeah, it, it borders into this, This it's almost like, right, we've got this big budget. What are we going to do with it? And so it brings in these kind of hyper-realistic moments, cinematic moments, moments that feel like they're taken from a play as well. The, the production design is very heightened, very cinematic. Um, and it's about this this moral quandary where this police investigation opens up. There's a, there's a pair of, of bodies discovered in a garden that links to this phone call that David Lewis's character has made. And yeah, this moral quandary opens up between this this these two people who were very much, very believably in love. And it, it kind of goes from there. And honestly, I would have, it helps the production values. It's certainly very interesting, very beautiful to look at. But honestly, I could have just watched these two for days. There's there's such wonderful moments between them. Just that I could just, there's a moment they're walking through King's Cross Station together and he's carrying her bags and they're drinking coffee. And, and that on its own would have been the making of a wonderful show to me. Um, I found the cinematic stuff just a little bit distracting sometimes, if anything. But um, it's a fascinating story. Just, yeah, effortless performances from these two. I have a question. Oh. What is going on with this fucking behind-the-scenes device? Like, we had this in ah, Scenes from yes. a Marriage. Yes. Where we saw them going on to set before the thing started. Yeah. And that was a really fucking odd device. Mm. And then they do the same thing here, where literally you see all the extras waiting. It's and cue the rain, and extras, and action. Mm. And they start, and this seems like... Is this the new fashion? Why are people doing this? And make them stop. Well, it's a good. I'm glad you brought that up. I did mention it in my in my interview um, with Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis. Um, I thought my thought was that because I hated it in Scenes from a Marriage. Mm. For me, in Scenes from a Marriage, I thought it was pointless. I thought it was um, a gimmick, and I thought it was arty and pretentious. I think there is a point to it in this case, though, because and interestingly, in the closing credits of each episode, they interweave, they edit together those scenes of them literally building sets and stuff of this show and the real TV yeah. news footage yeah. of the actual case of the actual Susan and Christopher Edwards. And I think what it's saying is this whole thing, right, is the latest... I mean, there's a new true crime drama every fucking week, basically, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. You know, I, I imagine TV producers literally sitting there waiting for every crime, interesting crime murder story that happens in real life and pouncing on it to get the rights and or to, to decide we're going to make this story and, yeah. uh, as an ITV usually often for three or four parts or whatever. And I think this show is partly commenting on the whole genre and the whole morality of true crime. Because I think, and I think those moments of artifice where they're emphasizing this is a TV show are acknowledging the fact that we can never know the truth of these cases. You know, we are just, this is just a version of this story. And funnily enough, the whole show. The whole series becomes, as you keep, I watched three episodes, uh, it becomes more and more kind of fantastical and, mm. um, and, ext and extraordinary and, and artificial in many ways, mm. literally set. So as, 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 the, as Olivia Coleman and David Thewlis are ex looking, flashing back to incidents from their lives, the police are there watching them in a set that's clearly like, almost like an onstage set of their family home, for yeah. example, and the police are hovering around as well, and they're interacting with, you know, um, uh, Susan's mum, played amazingly by Felicity Montague, Lynn from Alan, from Alan Partridge. And, <laughs> and so the whole thing is about what is truth? Can we ever actually 
depict the truth in a drama. No, we can't. And we're going to acknowledge yeah. that. I think yeah. that's what's going on. Because we um, don't know, because they still maintain their innocence, don't yeah, they? Like, we, don't, still we genuinely alive. don't know what happened. I mean, mm. these people, I find the whole thing absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. There's so yeah. many amazing elements yeah. about this this project, right? First of all, Susan and Christopher are still alive in prison, and, yeah. and Olivia fucking Coleman and David fucking Theus are playing them yeah. in an absolutely extraordinary phantasmagorical TV series, which is directed by Will Sharp, who is now like a superstar director, directed The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, coming soon with Bendit Cumberbatch, which I've seen is brilliant, which Olivia Coleman narrates. He worked with her on Flowers, which was a, ma- a really unusual, bizarre Channel 4 comedy that was fascinating. Um, you know, this is, it was originally going to be directed by Alexander Payne of About Schmidt Sideways a fame, election oh, fame, wow. and he dropped out. Yeah, he dropped out due to scheduling conflict. That, that's what they say. And then Will Shop came in. But I think Will Shop has given it. It's got it's got a total Will Shop feel to it mm. of this kind of really weird again stuff where you don't know what's real and what's in the mind, particularly of Olivia Coleman's version of Susan Edwards. So I think it's an. I, I absolutely love it. I think it's re, I think it really works in being. I think the weirdness and the kind of almost experimental quality of some of it and the staginess of it. Is really clever and bold, and but it still doesn't take you out of the story. To, to you know, to per James's issues with genre mixing, <laughs> even though this is an incredible and it is funny. It's really funny. Like there's a bit where um, they've been slammed in jail, and and Susan Edwards, played by Olivia Coleman, talking to the. She says, "I'm not really a breakfast person, you know." Um, and scrambled eggs are really well, are really are really good. They're really well well done, you know, in this prison. And she's complimenting the chef of the scrambled eggs in the prison. There are moments like that that are really funny. And yet, there's a horrific scene where they talk, where she talks about the abuse she's suffered at the hands of her father to her mother, played by Felicity Montague, that I thought was stunning and powerful. When she basically accuses her mum of who her mum basically says she knew of the abuse that she says her father committed. Um, and those moments are incredibly powerful. Which she has to, as I mentioned in the interview again, the scene where she goes completely hysterical at her lawyer, and she's phenomenal. And it's absolutely mm. some of the most amazing work Olivia Coleman's ever done. And this is Oscar winner Olivia Coleman. So I cannot speak too highly of this show. I thought it was brilliant. Uh, the, the police, a bit similar, funny enough, to Ragdoll. The police are hilarious. <laughs> They're by Daniel Rigby. Yeah. He's so funny. And all of them, like, again, goofy Samuel Anderson, Kate O'Flynn. They're all, like, really goofy and kind of constantly taking piss out of each other and these characters. But it you totally believe that that's what they'd be like in this situation. I, re- I, I really, really love this. I think, it's, I think it's fantastic. And it's, by the way... I was worried because it is written by Olivia Coleman's husband, Ed Sinclair, right? And so, and that was when it was announced, and then she obviously she was attached. I, I you immediately think, oh, this is this is you know, um, yeah. you know, oh, how did this project get started? Well, funnily enough, Olivia Coleman, one of the most powerful actresses in the world now, gets. But this is his first script, right, for TV, and it's brilliant. I think mm. it's a brilliant, brilliant script. Not just you know in terms of it being funny and scary, but the way it balances all the different genres and all the different elements of this story i think it's really good so i think he's done a brilliant job it's, it's funny you mentioned the, the the police thing i do wonder whether because i watched this and ragdoll back to back i went straight from this into ragdoll but right. it did feel to me a little bit like the police from this had been transplanted into ragdoll yes. and that's maybe why i was so like this does not work what are you doing because they fit in this perfectly yeah yeah um, right. and it's because the tone of this is entirely consistent it brought to mind amelie for me actually because not just because it's french but also just it had that blurring of fantasy and reality and like obviously and this isn't a sentence you get to say an awful lot but they get a letter from Gerard Depardieu in the first episode (laughs) and he talks about the nature of cinema the purpose of stories the purpose of cinema 
And obviously, that's a really important thread in this because obviously, uh, because Susan has used cinema and that as an escape from her trauma from her abuse and so all the way through this like fantasy and reality bleeds into each other so yeah i, I totally get your point boy that this device this device that i really hope does not become a trend <laughs> works much better here than it does in themes on a marriage because this is all about where fantasy Ooh. ends and reality begins Ooh. and the fact that you, it's often very hard to tell and with a story we just don't know um but it's charming i also loved the way that it, it's shot in a really sort of almost desaturated palace as well so it feels like drab and dreary isn't the way but it feels really low-key visually Uh, and I think that weirdly just helped to emphasize the fact that this whole thing rests on those two performances I mean hers in particular but David Thewlis is very good as well um but that changes how many episodes have you watched oh I've only seen the first one right. I've only seen the well, first one so you see it goes wild visually in episodes two and three and it gets really oh, neon-y okay. oh yeah it's so interesting yeah so it's a diverse visual palette is what we're gonna yeah. say okay interesting um but yeah I, I love the fact that like what actually happens in episode one is quite low-key and understated but it's sold on these two fantastic just believable just delightful kind of absorb yourself in the performances uh and you know and but also again but the there's absurdity here proper absurdity but it totally fits the show like their actual arrest when they turn themselves in it's <laughs> fucking marvelous so it's just really really funny um yeah it's it's a great show but it's a very odd show as well like it's quite mm. hard to i think pigeonhole like if you are going to play genre pigeonholing then fucking good luck with this so. yeah i but it's funny because as i was moving my long-winded you know, pee into the show. I totally, you know, I didn't even acknowledge the whole, the whole Gerard Depardieu, Gary <laughs> Cooper obsession yeah. with movies yeah. and memorabilia, which they spent the real life couple with you. Cause I've now read up on the whole thing, spent yeah. tens of thousands of pounds on, on that movie memorabilia stuff. Wow. And on that whole, I won't give it away, but part of why this, this is going to sustain all the episodes. I think it's, is it four or six episodes? However many episodes it is, is because there, it, there's so many interesting elements to it. The movie memorabilia element is fucking amazing. It, honestly, wow. it's batshit. It's so interesting how, how dominant that was in their lives, particularly in her life. Yeah. And you'll mm. see more of that played out as it goes on, yeah. Well, Landscapers then begins on Sky Atlantic, and now, uh, on Tuesday, December the 7th at 9pm. What else is out this week? I'm going to say not a lot, actually. Well, there is, and then there were, and just like that, I was going to say, then there were none. The title, <laughs> let's, isn't it? The title of this fucking Sex and the yes, City right, sequel. Oh, yes. is, there, is there a worse title of anything? And just like that, <laughs> I think that's what it's called. It's but just, what the fuck? Yeah, it's yeah. just pure fan service because that's the, that's, that's just nostalgia, isn't it? Because that's what the, what she starts a lot of her, what ends yes. a lot of her um, yes. blog entries, whatever the fuck they are now, where this is, is a, and just like that, and just like that. Yeah, um, but it doesn't kind of work as a title. I don't, anyway, no. who the fuck? It, no. it, but, that, but, but the Sex in the City sequel, and just like that, starts on Thursday, on my birthday, the 9th of December, um, on Sky, but we haven't been allowed to see it. No one we haven't been allowed world, to see it. Now, I read. I saw a prominent critic on Twitter who I shall not name. I don't know what I've forgotten his name. In fact, but a prominent <laughs> so you can't t- name him. <laughs> so I can't name him. A prominent TV critic though on Twitter did make the point that in this day and age, when a when a company like HBO doesn't show you any episodes of a big new series, you have to worry. And you know, yeah. maybe, but you know, like they they certainly gave us fucking seven episodes of Succession. Put it that way. <laughs> you know, when they're, they're pretty confident that that's an amazing show. Yeah. Not one peep. Of, of fucking and, and just like that, so I'm slightly worried about it. Yeah. But equally, I'm going to have to watch it because I, you know, oh, un- unavoidably, it's a huge thing. yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, we just, we know what happened with that second film. So <laughs> let's hope they've learned yeah. something. <laughs> they must have, surely. Yeah. yeah. Um. So there's that. There's Vienna Blood. Do you remember Vienna Blood? Second series, that's on Friday on BBC Two. I don't. What was Vienna Blood? Vienna Blood it was um, created by Stephen Thompson, who co-wrote or wrote a lot of the episodes of Sherlock um, in the first couple of series of Sherlock. And it's a bit of a Sherlockian quality. It's, uh, it's, about, it's set in Vienna in the 1900s. It's, it's, um, it's like a basically very elaborate crime thing about with like Freudian psycho- psychology and psychoanalysis meets crime kind of thing. It's yeah. quite, it, it, I, I quite like it. Um, and they're 90-minute episodes, so it's, like, it's got that Sherlockian um, uh, feature-length film one, mm. and they're quite elaborate and kind of beautifully directed. Um, so I think it's a pretty good show. Um, it certainly has, a, you know, it's like a cult, pretty much a cult phenomenon. That's on Friday on BBC Two, three new episodes. Um, what else? I think that's broadly speaking, yeah. There's yeah. not a lot. There's not a lot. So when you were saying that you're shocked and appalled that I'm a fascist for making this review of Final Season Expanse, there wasn't anything else, Boyd. <laughs> well, I could have forced you to watch a 90-minute um, Vienna Blood thing, but you would have been absolutely furious. <laughs> I'd have been up and oh, yeah, up. Oh, you know, there's this voir. Have you heard about this voir on, um, on Netflix? Which is oh, David Fincher. Fincher. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. Fincher thing. That starts this week. Oh, it's where he's talking to critics, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, mm. indeed. Well, well critics yeah, no. opine on no, not for japes. They basically, it's like yeah, it's celebrating classic films like Jaws, and, and yeah, it has got critics interwoven with. I think quite kind of arty, kind of kind of celebration of films. I, I'm fascinated. I haven't seen it, but I'm kind of fascinated no. to see what it's like. But anyway, yeah, but there isn't that much else on. You're right. We had to review the Expanse. All right, fine. And speaking of the Expanse, what is our pick of the week? <laughs> my god oh landscapers yeah landscapers definitely (laughs) and it is the expanse anyway let's (laughs) let's wrap this up that's it for this week's podcast uh we are in the run-up to christmas so get those presents in early and feel free to ask santa to give us a five-star rating and a glowing review on apple podcasts uh and we are as ever at james c dyer at beth k webb and at boyd hilton on social media now on next week's show there will be some TV series. I don't know what exactly, but I do know that one of them will see us tossing a coin to Netflix for the very long-awaited season two of The Witcher. And not only that, but of course, Geralt of Rivia, The Witcher himself, will be on the show to talk to me about all manner of nerdy shit. And he brought his rather excellent and entirely enormous dog, Cal, with him. It was glorious. Pilot out. <laughs> 